Western Japan. But we've got hot tunes and booze to warm the soul. I'm all warmed up inside, Russ. I'm on fire. I'm ready to go. Are you back on the booze? I'm back on the booze. Last week, listeners might... I know listeners were concerned that I was uh, not feeling well. I was drinking tea. But uh, this week, I uh, had a few beers before today's podcast, and now I'm back on the... uh, the Knob Creek uh, single barrel bourbon. Here we go. All right, in stereo. Yeah, so I'm already, I'm already well lubricated. On that so, mic over there with the Knob Creek is Mike. That's me, Michael, Mike, and uh, you know, you know what I like about lubricated liquor, and it makes you loquacious. I like the way like, liquor and loquacious both have a cue in them. It kind of makes them feel kind of related to me. You know, kind of like they go together. Liquor loquacious. That would yeah. be a good title to get sometime if we can get one more word. Yeah. Oh, that could be good. Maybe maybe that, yeah. We'll, we'll maybe we'll work that in this week. We'll see. Hot loquacious licks and liquor. Loquacious like licks. That. Ooh, that could be good. Loquacious licks. Let's write that down somewhere before we forget it. Well, loquacious, we're the loquacious ones. They're, they're giving the licks. The I don't know. Licks, I that's right. Yeah, mm. I don't know. It's a thought, though. Yeah, well, I'm glad anyway. you're. I'm glad you're feeling better. And I feel amazing. Yeah. yeah. Back. I'm back in full health and uh, no COVID on me. I can tell you that. You can Now I just dated the podcast. Like if someone listens to this 10 years from now, they're going to know that it was during this period. Well, that's all right. No problem to have a little timestamp on things for episode right. 37 oh. of Adult of Music. Of what? Adult, adult Music. music. Okay. And what is Adult Music? Well, it's the podcast with music... For the Mature Mind, we're here every week with at least six new releases of classical and jazz music and sometimes something outside of those realms too to stimulate your brain through active listening. And, well, what are we talking about? Well, you can find out in the episode description uh, on whatever platform you're listening to us on, uh, where you'll find links to all of the recordings on Spotify and Apple, the two most popular streaming services. Uh, however, we prefer Deezer for our regular listening, and uh, we also have a full episode playlist on Deezer with all the recordings uh, in one spot, and you'll find that at the top of the episode description, uh, where you can also follow us on the podcast, Deezer Podcasts, uh, Adult Music Podcast is the name there. Uh, Whatever platform you listen to us on, if you don't see the full description, uh, you can come over to our host site where everything is easy to see and all the links are active, and that's Podbean, and just look for Adult Music on Podbean. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. If you take a moment, give us a ranking, write a review. That will help us get listed in the ever-growing browsing category recommendations, uh, and that helps us grow our audience. If you'd like to contact us directly, if you have any comments or questions, we'd like to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yes, there you go. And uh, tonight, we have some really fantastic... This has been a fantastic listening week, hasn't it? Yeah, we have more than usual. We actually have uh, eight. Well, it it took a lot of... Well, eight 
eight kinda, albums worth of eight CDs, eight CDs, albums, yeah, yeah eight, eight CDs, CDs worth yeah. of music. We had two kind of double albums this week, and I'll explain why in the classical uh, right. <laughs> region that is. And then I, I just picked two um, single CDs to butt together, which I often do in this. Uh, and I had been organizing. I had a long list of growing jazz things I wanted to listen to, and then I just was sort of categorizing them and I had okay look I have all these uh, recordings that are led by drummers which doesn't happen a lot and uh, I didn't realize that one of them was a double album and then right. I saw you had a double <laughs> so yeah. no, no problem CDs for me well I didn't to. have a double album I had two albums I put yeah. together actually right as one thing I'll explain why I did that when we get to it mm. but um but anyway, it was uh, worthwhile listening to everything. It was. And, uh, yeah, it, I just wish we had more like free time during the week, you know, that where because we have we have day jobs. We're kind of hoping to make this our uh, permanent employment nice. one day. That's right. That would be nice, but uh, we have to build up the podcast, get a few more listeners, actually a lot more listeners. Yeah. But well, corporate uh, sponsorships would be good. Corporate These sponsorships are, would help. What do we got? I've got uh, or, or maybe even a rich donor, if you're out there, send us yeah. an email and tell us uh, that you or want to send us a lot of money. Equipment. I've got uh, AKG, Audio Technica. We've got all these things that could be sponsored. Right. You know, get my sexy right. radio voice a little backing. And my brother likes your sexy radio voice. Oh. My my family doesn't like my voice at all. They just kind of don't. They don't like well, to talk about it. I suspect most listeners don't either, but that's okay. It's well, I, I can see the family thing. You know? I will defiantly but, go uh, on. <laughs> I'm glad your brother likes my sexy voice. This is a, he does for him. Yeah, and all the ladies out there too, of course, yeah. <laughs> and anyone else who likes it. So, you know. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> hey, we're going to go on a voyage, aren't we, to start things out? All right, so we're going to start out, I guess, here, because you said that magic word, Adriatic voyage, a voyage on the Adriatic Sea. This is our first hmm. classical recording. So, okay. Is yeah, that a just reed a boat? Do you need a reed boat to go on the Adriatic yeah. Sea? Or? Yeah, listeners, we're now talking about the music. We're not like... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are not chatting anymore. Jumped okay. into that. Yeah, we just really jumped into that unexpectedly. Okay, yeah, our first album is called Adriatic. All right, we're starting with classical music, the Baroque era, Adriatic voyage, 17th century music from Venice to Dalmatia. And is that where those before, dogs came from? Or uh, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's why the you know, Dalmatians. I guess they would be right. They yeah. probably they were probably bred there. Mm. Um, some listener, if you're out there and you know, you can write us a note and let us know. Yeah. Uh, write to our email though. Don't uh, <laughs> if you just leave a comment, we probably won't see it because we can't get to all these sites. Hmm. Anyway, are Dalmatians is... on Spotify? Yeah, Ooh, that's a bad part. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> oh man, I didn't even think of that. God, Dalmatians, Spotify. Yeah, that's yeah. all. There you go. Oh, now there are spots of before Dogged my eyes. On it. Can't... Uh, anyway, yeah. keep going. Yeah. All right, no, no, no more, please. <laughs> no more. <laughs> okay, stop it. All right. Anyway, where is Dalmatia anyway? Do you know? It's across the Adriatic Sea. Somewhere, yeah. Was it like Croatia or uh, yeah, it's, um, Serbia or something like that? It's um, Yeah, exactly. I, I did know, but then I forgot. Um, it's, yeah, that's um, pretty much my situation with literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> I used to know, but I forgot. Well, um, I guess it's Croatia, yeah. Uh, now that yeah. I think about oh, it. Yeah. yeah, the old Yugoslavia, basically. Yeah. I don't know where it was at the time of this reco uh, recording. Music was okay, yeah, we're talking yeah. about like the uh, 
I guess the 1700s here, or the 1600s. Six, yeah, yeah 1700s, this would be the 1600s. Yeah. yeah, the early Baroque era. Okay, the performers here are the Marian Consort, uh, directed by Rory McCleary, and the Illyria Consort. Oh, I like that name, Illyria. Okay, Boyan Chichic is the well, director. Th- there's a lot of uh, extra symbols in that name. Right, there are. Uh, it's a CH in English. It's like a CH. I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, and this is on the Delphian label, the Edinburgh Edinburgh-based Delphian label in Scotland. They've been putting out a lot of really good stuff lately, and this is one of them. I have to say, um, this is an album of um, um, music that you would have come across if you were. Um, traveling on the Adriatic Sea from Venice into what is now Croatia, or you know, down into the other, the other, the eastern shore. Okay, across from Venice, and um, the booklet note goes into a long description of um, one particular voyage um, that was taken by a um, a political oh man, I can't remember off the top of my head now. Um, a uh, what do, you, what do you call these political guys who um, they're like represent the, your government? They're uh, an ambassador, ambassador, okay, I guess. Yeah, to um, these these other what were in countries then. One of the things we need to remember about when we're talking about the Baroque era is this whole idea of nationalism that you had a nation and you belonged to the soil really didn't exist. Um, you were just under the rule of some king, you know, or emperor or whoever it was, some lord or something. And uh, you, um, you know, it, it didn't really matter what your, um, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to say racial, but let's, I can't think of another word at the moment. Ethnic your racial background identity. was, you were just Tribal. wherever you were. Yeah. yeah. It was, it's, it was more kind of like you belong to this ruler rather than to this land. Like dem- democracy tends to, we tend to belong more to the land or something like that if we're in that, um, situation anyway um in in this okay in this case so it's it's sort of like uh music you would have heard if you were on this voyage that you would have come across um this album i should mention right away is really beautifully recorded it it was just stunning Mm -hmm. um the voices are all clearly discernible through the textures and um, what we hear on the record isn't all written down. It's sort of realized, okay, because Baroque-era music was kind of – you would get a melody and you'd get chords and the continuo would have to be improvised by the sketched um, more players. Less, yeah, it's yeah. all sketched, basically, and it has to be recreated by the um, mus- musician. So it's not quite improvisation like you'd get in jazz, but again, it's not written out, so you're not really remembering anything. You have to sort of interpret. So all these records tend to sound – really different and this one does too yeah and it's got these uh, period instruments too yeah and some of those period instruments are instruments you we don't really hear very often Mm. are they like uh, cornets and sackbutts yeah dulcian ah the the sack and the dulcian too which is a kind of bassoon it's it's yeah looks like you might be able to smoke some buds or something in it I don't know oh yeah dulcian (laughs) I like the name better I I don't know I like it too yeah I don't the thing is I made this joke in my novel Extreme Music uh, bassoon kind of sounds like a buffoon you know <laughs> so I don't I, th- I think the Dulcian name I think I like that better it does sound very old 
but dolce, yeah. you know, like in Latin dolce. is like, or in Italian is sweet. So dulcian mm-hmm. would be a sweet sound, I guess. Anyway, let's um, start talking about the music on this album. Um, the f- these are all composers that I've never heard of before. And I've read the, I have on my shelf right here in my house, the book Italian Baroque Masters, and um, none of these people are in it. <laughs> At least I don't remember them being in it. I've read it from cover to cover back when I was doing my master's well, degree. That's be- you know why? Because yeah. it says music from Venice to Dalmatia. Yeah. But I guess it wasn't a round trip. They just... They went one way. They went one way, and that's what they never heard from again. So. Well, yeah. I imagine they, they returned. The book. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, they, well, they were wherever they were. Yeah. And they were both Italian and... Other, I guess. I don't know. I guess they were kind of Yeah, there's Slovak. some names here that don't look quite Italian to me. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about those when we get to them. One of the, in fact, the first one, the first Francesco Usper. Yeah. Usper. Hmm. So he sounds like he had um, parents from both places, maybe. Um, this album, it's a pretty interesting um, mix of um, music to this, this sacred music, this secular music, this instrumental music, this vocal music. It really keeps you... Um, it, it gives you a, a, the ear a variety of um, things to stay interested in. So uh, that's another good thing about it. Yeah, there's acapella uh, and yeah, and everything. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go this through this. Not necessarily track by track, but we'll go through the whole album. Um, the first work, Francesco Usper. We hear him uh, on the first track, and it's an Ave Maria, uh, a mournful player in this case. Um, this is uh, sung by a choir and strings without vibrato. We're very much in this Baroque period um, performance type of um, sound world. Okay, it really puts us in the, uh, I'm going to say it puts us in the period, but the, to be honest, we really don't know what these um, ensembles sounded like. But we do imagine they didn't use vibrato. Um, that's really a later development in music. Vibrato is like kind of moving your finger on the strings of the violin so that it makes like a, sort of uh, almost um, vibrating sound as opposed to just like a long kind of whining sound, I guess. I don't know. There's a bit of counterpoint in this piece, in this particular work. I shouldn't call it a piece. It's only one movement. Uh, The beginning is sung chords. Um, There are wind instruments in there and cornets and sackbutts and a dulcian. So we hear them all right away. Now, I always think about sackbutts as being this really like loud, nasally, and annoying instruments, but that that's not the case here. They, they're really mixed in very well with the ensemble. You do notice them, of course, but uh, I would hate to have a neighbor that played the sack, but I would tell you that. Yeah, this is like the image just from the, you know, modern English, sack and butt. It just doesn't... Uh, <laughs> I play the sack butt, you know. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't They'd do have to change it, the name today well, if it yeah. was still popular. They wouldn't right. allow that, I think, you know. But the, okay, it does, and then we have um, a, they do cut through though. You'll you'll notice um, because the without vibrato the voice blend and the yeah. movement of the voice is, is so smooth. And these period instruments, uh, the wind instruments, have quite an edge to them, and so they right. do carry and cut through. Uh, to you know, you you may have heard these before on different recordings, but in combination with vocals, they do have an edge of tone that uh, makes them sort of pierce through on the recording and, and make you take right. attention to them. I noticed that right away on the first track. That was something that really excited me, really even back in the 1980s when the whole like uh, period instruments revival thing was coming mm-hmm. around. I, everything had an, a unique voice. It kind of sounded like, I guess, a democracy, you could say. It's like everything was unique, 
but sort of blending together into a whole. Anyway, on we go. Gabriele Usper. Uh, I guess Francesco's brother. We don't really know. Didn't say anything about it in the notes. Uh, we have a um, an instrumental work here right away. So there's no vocal. Um, it's This is a pretty chirpy work for strings and winds. And uh, winds being Sackbutt's cornets and the dulcian again. There's also a wood organ in there, uh, which is more quieter than a big church organ, mm. uh, providing continuo. There are lots of changes in the rhythmic patterns to hold the interest, in, as in the Stylus Fantasticus album that we talked about a few weeks back. So this would be like an early Baroque era. This is before the time when you can really write an extended work with the advanced uh, understanding of harmony that came later. So they would um, uh, composers would vary the rhythms and the um, textures of uh, sections of their works to keep yeah. interest. The cornetti you know. part in here is just fabulous, too. Yeah, it's really... Yeah. Really uh, well played. Yeah, yeah, they're this very good ensemble playing here. In fact, everybody's really excellent. Okay, next we get to another Italian composer, Gabriello Puliti, and Dialactus Meus, which means my beloved. All right, this is from the Song of Songs in the Bible, and this is sung by the chorus. Um, very erotic lyrics, by the way. This is always something that that's interested me. Um, I've read things about the Song of Songs in the Bible saying that, oh, it's a, a hymn to the love of God, but it's not. It's 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 very erotic. It's about some ruler who wants to uh, get it on with his uh, one of his um, slave girls, I guess. Someone who works outside. Anyway, not not appropriate by, you know, for today's um, audiences, but it's in the Bible, so we kind of they, Sounds they, like they adult kinda, music to me. Covered up. It is indeed adult <laughs> music. Yes, this is the way we like it. <laughs> anyway, track four, Gabriello Puliti again. Now this is really interesting because we just heard um, this and Dialectus Meus from the Song of Songs, where the um, the singer is singing about um, his uh, desire for this woman. And then in the next um, piece, we have a piece called Donna Ingrata. First of all, it's not in Latin. It's in the vernacular Italian. So the, the language of the people uh, for solo voice and accompaniment. And this one is uh, mostly a guitar-like instrument, Thorobo, which I guess yeah, is right? a theor the theorbo. Yeah. Um, it sounds pretty high and gentle for the theorbo, though. I didn't know a theorbo can do that. The, and I think there's a little programming joke here because um, Arise My Love and Come, now we're hearing uh, it was the previous track and now we're hearing ungrateful woman so i'm guessing the trist in track three didn't go so well <laughs> does it as it often doesn't yeah yeah well yeah i think uh, a lot of them don't and you know we don't really hear about that in songs very often uh, or the singer now has his eyes on someone else you know he kind of you know huh done with her let's get on let's let's <laughs> let's go for this other woman here that could be happening too uh Back to the music, though. This is a nice piece with a series of verses commented on by the changing instruments at the end. It's inventively arranged by the ensemble. Okay, I just want to mention, first of all, we're making jokes about this, but this is all very straight. You know, these there. I think there are little jokes in the program, but the music is very much what it is. It's very kind of, you know, it's it's not a funny album <laughs> by any means. No, no. Yeah. Okay. It's 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 just music of the period. Okay. Next, we get three pieces by a composer named Vincenz Jelich. Okay, now this has f tracks 5, 6, and 7. The tracks 5 and 7 are both uh, vocal works, 
and they're both religious as well. And the middle movement is a an instrumental music, so you can call this a Yellick sandwich. Oh, man. <laughs> just the jokes just don't stop coming with this record, do they? Can, can we can we start this podcast over? <laughs> we should, yeah. Maybe we should. I don't know. Um, let me mention though, I really liked this album a lot, even though thinking of all these things. But I think the ensemble does have a sense of humor in the programming, even though they're playing the music very seriously. Okay, so I think there is that. It's mm. meant to raise a smile. Okay, the first piece, Bona Yesu, which means Good Jesus. Um, this harmonic singing here for a single melody, no counterpoint on this one so the words are very easy to hear um there's a lot of variety i should also point out by this point we're only on track five but we've heard a lot of variety so far we've heard religious music we've heard instrumental music and we've heard a um a secular tune uh donna ingrata the previous track um so this is this is really interesting programming and it's also very clever as well as we've pointed out in our little uh jokes yeah right. there's a lot of variety and then mm. the, especially some of the tunes when the organ comes in it's completely different sort of, um, you know, uh, weight to the tunes uh, right. that this old style organ comes in. And then you've got you know, some acapella things mixed in here. You've got the strings and then you've got the interesting period uh, wind instruments. So every tune has a really kind of a unique timbre collection of uh, things and uh a different topic, whether it's secular or religious. Uh, so within this period, you're also experiencing a lot of variety of uh, compositional yeah. ideas as well as instrumentation. So, yeah, it, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, by the way, in this, uh, the first, the track five, the Bona Yesu by Vincent Yelich, at the end, there's an Alleluia. All these, all these sort of pieces ends with an Alleluia. And I just love the rhythmic bounce that the Alleluia has here and really in all early Baroque works when they set church music. I really love it. So give that a special listen if you actually go to these uh, tracks. Okay, the middle movement, reach a car, uh, uh, tre, I guess, uh, uh, three. Okay, it's the, this is the instrumental. This is the meat in the Yellick sandwich. It's pretty slow. And drawn out notes, and it's a bit sad. And then we end with Exultate Deo, which is a rejoicing God, a very um, joyous piece, sung by a solo bass. Again, more um, variety. Okay, we've been hearing a lot of choral singing, and here we hear a, a solo bass voice. Okay, track eight, Giulio Schiavetto, whose name <laughs> means little slave. <laughs> Schiavetto, oh. can you imagine that? Wow. Can you imagine if that was like an English name? Little Slave, <laughs> now batting for the Dodgers, number 18, Julio, Little Slave. Oh, I don't know. But anyway, that's what, what, that's what it means. Yeah. Anyway, the, we, the work is Ave Maria. It's a polyphonic work, very different than the solo bass work that preceded it for all the voices with string accompaniment. This is a gorgeous Tra one, yeah. It is pretty, I really yes. like this one. Yeah, Julio Schiavetto. He may be a little slave, but he's a great composer. <laughs> anyway. Nice voice movement in this one. All right. Track nine, Bartolomeo Sorte y Superbi Colossi. Uh, this is a more scattered homophonic work for choir. It's more... It, it's, it's like a it, The text is about how awesome its dedicatee is. <laughs> yeah. Colossi. I always love these pieces because I tend to like 
try to forget about the dedicatee and uh, think of that it's being sung to me, which oh. makes it even more appealing still, doesn't it? You know? Yeah. Okay. Th- this would be good work to start the day with. You know, you feel good about yourself. This is the piece that mentions, oh, um, Giacomo Soranzo is mentioned in this piece, and he was the uh, diplomat. That was the word I was looking for earlier, the diplomat who was uh, traveling into right. um, what are currently Croatian lands to uh, get some sort of a deal with Venice. Okay, next we have three works by Ioannis Lukacic de Sebenico. The first one is uh, a religious work, Panis Angelicus, uh, The Bread of Angels. Now, people might recognize this title from the famous uh, César Franck work that gets played at Christmas all the time. I still have memories of Pavarotti singing this on his O Holy Night album. This is a different setting, of course. Um, It's got mild polyphony in it, sung by the choir. Um, oh, by the way, Charles Gounod set the really famous uh, version of this that you know. Um, this is charming and it's easy, and it's easy to follow the vocals. I really like this a lot. The next work, Quam Purkra Est, How Beautiful You Are. Also from the Song of Songs. I guess you could have guessed that. And this one's for all the vocalists. They sing together for the chorus, Quam Purkra Est, and each gets a solo in the verses. Um, and then we have the last Sabetico work, Sikut Sedrus. This is also rather slow and exalted sounding, and there's some nice melisma from the solo soprano. This is a standout vocal track on the album for me. Uh, uh, the, she's good. Uh, this is soprano, yeah, yeah, the lyrics and she uh, sings solo. Yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Well, you sent me the uh, notes, and uh, all right. So the the lyrics are are very uh, beautiful, and uh, it's a soaring female vocal, and uh, she does utilize a kind of vibrato in some places but it's very limited and controlled with the straight tone it's really beautiful voice control and uh, a great composition and and she makes the the best of it Uh, i this one really caught my attention yeah track 12 everybody if you want to sample that now secret said the by johannes lukacic de sebenico okay next we have um Wow, one, two, three, four, five um, compositions by Tommaso Cecchino. And um, this would be a triple-decker sandwich, I guess, if you want to keep with that metaphor. Yeah. The first piece is uh, Surge Propera, which is uh, from the Song of Songs in the Bible again. Um, okay, this um, this particular work, let me see. Okay, there are two vocal works that encase three sonatas in this in this triple decker sandwich. Let's say, okay, so surge propera. This is uh, for the choir, and they all sing the chorus, and they're all paired off in the verses. This is really pretty because you'll you'll you hear the full all of the singers in the choruses, but then you'll hear them duetting in each of the verses with in different combinations. It's really nicely um, uh, executed. Really interesting um, colors in this. Vocal colors, timbres, shall we say. Track 14, Tommaso Cecchino. This is a sonata for violin solo with continuo. In this case, it's the theorbo, which is like a gigantic guitar-type instrument. And the piece ends with solo organ. Track 15 is sonata uh, 7. Winds are heard in this one. And it sounds like a cornet is the solo instrument. And these work like the Stilus Fantasticus works, where the rhythm keeps changing in each section to kind of 
indicate that the section has changed. Uh, track 16, uh, Sonata 8. This, um, I guess, I would, accurately, I would say Sonata 8, but that would be 8. This sounds like more like a pastoral melody with squarer melodies in it. Okay, pastoral melodies tend to be, there's nothing really tricky about them. They're usually, they're usually pretty simple. All right, and then we get another vocal work. This is the bread after this triple-decker sandwich. Al Vivo Sol. Um, it's a lightly scored love song sung in duet by soprano and bass. Very pretty. And finally, it's it's almost like this entire program is like a gigantic Another sandwich. Danwood, Dagwood sandwich. <laughs> uh, because we end with the composer we began with. This is only the second piece we're hearing by him, Francesco Usper. And this is called Battaglia per sonar e cantar a otto. Uh, eight voices. Um... This is a religious song with brass as military-sounding fanfares. Uh, the singers uh, each get a solo section and sing together at the end. Um, so this is a really good album. By the way, I thought of this as like an evening album, a good way to end the day. It's got an early evening feel to it. And the programming is very clever and a little uh, a little comical. I think this ensemble, these two ensembles have a bit of a sense of humor. Um, you don't really hear that in the music. The, the works are all pretty serious, and they're all very seriously and very beautifully um, performed and recorded. Anyway, highly recommended, and it's a little unusual too. This the programming is excellent. The um, the uh, instrumental ensembles, the, the the sound that you the sounds that you hear, the instruments are all rather uh, different than your average run of the mill baroque recording. This is really something uh, unique, and I would recommend you hear it. Yeah, interesting and unique instrumentation, uh, period instruments, the tone of the instruments will catch your ear. The cornetti uh, playing is uh, really good. There's also uh, tenor cornetti, uh, cornetto, I guess, on the last mm. track, too. It's a little bit uh, uh, different uh, tone to it. So the period instruments sound great. The vocals are wonderfully blended, uh, and I like, you've got a, a, a range of voices, you know, like this soprano and bass together is a nice combination. Uh, and, yeah, the other uh, acapella works are really appealing and uh, right. attention-catching. Uh, yeah, I, I listened to this several times, and I'm going to go back and listen yeah. again. Uh, I probably I will, a, too. Yeah, yeah well it's, worth it's your really time. nice recording. Put it on at dusk. It's perfect for that. It just feels like that sort of um, album. I really like to unwind to this at the end of the yeah. day. I'll just I have to put this on again. All right, highly recommended. Uh, Adriatic Voyage, everyone. Okay, next. This is my so-called double album. It's actually not a double album. It's two separate albums that were both released this year. Okay, Jurgis. Now, I didn't get a pronunciation for his name. I did look for one. So forgive me, you Lithuanian listeners. If I get this wrong, he's a very famous composer from Lithuania, but we don't really know him. The rest of us don't really know him, so he's kind of like a, I guess you can call him a known unknown, as you can say, as uh, mm. Donald Rumsfeld said <laughs> back in the day. Oh, what a life we've led, huh? Anyway, <laughs> Jurgis Kanavicius, Karnavicius. He was Lithuanian, and he lived from 1884 to 1941. So that would make him um, 
the modernist era. Now, I noticed he died during the Second World War, but I couldn't get any information about his death. Did he die as a result of the war, or did what happened? He was fairly young. Hmm. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe he's in his 60s, I guess. That's starting to feel young. <laughs> 50s, yeah. <laughs> starting to feel young. Yeah, we're getting older here. We're almost there. <laughs> anyway, what we're hearing... We have two CDs here. The first one, or two albums. The first one is String Quartets 1 and 2. And the second one is the recently released String Quartets 3 and 4. Now, I did some research on this. <laughs> research. I looked it up on the internet. That's not research. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I hate it when people say that. Oh, you should do so. I did some research. You looked something up on the internet. That's That doesn't Did count. you go to the, the archives in Lithuania? <laughs> I didn't go no. to the archives in Lithuania no. for this. Oh. Anyway. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice, but um, could have met some nice Lithuanian people on the way too. Anyway, um, the four string quartets. My my looking this up on the internet informed me that the uh, four string quartets uh, are really all of the string quartets of Carnivicius. He's um, he only wrote four, so we've heard all four of them, and I've never heard I've heard his name because uh, I met a Lithuanian woman years ago. And she told me about him because I was really into music. And she mentioned, and I, I, I tend, I'm one of these idiots who ask people, oh, who, who would be your composer, your, your country's greatest composer? And uh, she mentioned him. And so apparently, Lithuanian people know him very well. When I think of this name, I think of carnivore and delicious, and carnivalicious, <laughs> and I kind of like it because carnivalicious <laughs> would be a great album name, boy. <laughs> Yeah, or maybe a good because band it name. Reminds me of name. you know barbecue. So <laughs> <laughs> the music doesn't didn't remind me of barbecue though. I have to say, not quite. It's very no. different. Yeah, right. Anyway, so we do hear all four the, the all four string quartets by uh, Carnivicious. This is these are performed by the Vilnius String Quartet, and they're on the Ondine label, one of my favorite labels actually. They are Finnish, and one of the reasons they're my favorite labels is because they. Um, release a lot of Finnish music, which I believe is some of the best music, the best classical music being composed today. Um, so I'm always happy. I'm always kind of looking into the Ondine new releases to see what's coming out. Um, incidentally, the, we will have a contemporary composer on that label next, but we'll get to that when we do. Anyway, um, Carnivicious, what, one of the reasons you haven't heard of him is because he's not a modernist. He's... Um, he followed, I guess, what you call a moderate aesthetic. There's a bit of late romanticism to his style, but it's not quite romantic either. Um, he does kind of go back to even the Mozart era. Like, um, there's a, there are a lot of classical elements in this. Or should we say Ranitsky? We call the Ranitsky be. era because he was very classical as well. I thought the first two were having a lot of uh, folk influences, and to me, yeah. kind of a a Brahmsian sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, impact on them. Whereas the yeah. three and four... Uh, They're a little more uh, out there. A little bit I more, guess. yeah, the, especially in the in uh, the harmony, uh, a little bit more modern. But Right. Yeah, I, yeah I'd pretty much agree with that, I'd say. Uh, his teacher was Maximilian Steinberg, who was a disciple of Rimsky-Korsakov. Okay, so that'll okay. tell you what you need to know. Um, he's a disciple of Rimsky Korsakov, and he's also a nurturer of traditions. So you're going to hear a lot of folky melodies, especially in the first string quartet. Um, 
By the way, uh, you know who else took lessons from Rimsky-Korsakov was uh, Stravinsky. And uh, oh. Rimsky-Korsakov was not pleased with the music that Stravinsky wrote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it didn't matter. Stravinsky went on to become one of the great composers of the 20th century. Carnivicius um, uh, did not go the way of Stravinsky. He remained sort of uh, fairly conservative, let's say, and so his music sort of fell by the wayside. But that doesn't mean it's not good. It's just, especially now when we hear this, now that all these um, modernist wars and uh, are have uh, faded away we we can really appreciate this music for what it is like his personal statements about how he saw his world all right the first string quartet opus one so this is the first work he ever wrote i guess or ever published all right when we say by the way anyone who doesn't know this opus number whenever you see op period it means opus opus means the order that works were published not the order they were composed in, okay? This is kind of important to understand. Often, they can be public, composed and then published in that order, but the opus number specifically names the order the works were published in. Okay, if you with Beethoven, this becomes a big mess because um, there are some early Beethoven works that have, that have high opus numbers that they, you know, they, they were published later than he wrote them. Enough of Beethoven. Anyway, string quartet number one. This was composed when Carnivicius graduated from the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1913, and it wasn't performed until 1916. At that time, Carnivicius was at the uh, the front, fighting in World War One, uh, fighting the Hungarians and the Germans. I'm not really sure how the Hungarians figure in that, but um, people from the region will certainly know. Uh, he was taken prisoner, and he was not, as a result, was not present at the first performance. Uh, I do feel for him. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, this work is very traditional in its... Um, Except the movements are so long, he could have almost escaped very long. And, and come back in time, know, right? <laughs> he probably could have. That's very true. But they're very traditional in the way they're set up. They're, they're mm. set up in, in an almost classical form. The first movement is very much a sonata. So it has two themes, you know, connected by a bridge. There's a cadence. There's a middle development section. And then the... Uh, there's a recapitulation section where the two themes at the end repeat. So it's very easy to follow if you understand what a sonata is. Um, if you don't understand what a sonata is, you should look to Robert Greenberg's course, How to Listen to and Understand Great Music on the Great Courses. He'll explain it all to you. I could I could do it too. Or, you know who else did that? Is uh, Wynton Marsalis actually explained this too. Hmm. Um, somewhere on the internet. So you can look for that. Sonata. Look it up on YouTube or something. Anyway, first movement. Allegro Moderato. It's catchy and beautiful. This is a really beautiful work. It's it's uh, very appealing to the ears. Um, the opening theme sounds sort of like a folk dance. It, it really did put me in the mind of that um, because it has like a rhythm to it. And uh, it's pretty simple. It's easy to remember, which is important in, in a movement that's 11 minutes long. You have to remember <laughs> the uh, themes, right? Uh, so there's a sense of tradition in the movement. Um Folk dances from this era, when I think of them, I think of Bartok, but this is nowhere near as adventurous as a, as a Bartok mm -mm. kind of uh, theme. It's, it's, it's fairly conservative, actually. And I hate to use the word conservative for anything that was connected 
to Russia or like Lithuania, Latvia, these nations close to Russia, because they were in a different situation than the Western world was. So music sort of developed differently there. Um, um, you know, not a bad thing. This is a pretty romantic work and it's in traditional harmony. The movement is in traditional sonata form. There are two themes in different keys that developed in the middle section and they're clearly delineated. So they don't like, you know, fade one into the other so that you kind of wonder where the separation is. Um, it, it's almost like this work almost has classical lines like uh, a work by Mozart or Haydn would have. Um, we only hear the two themes at the in the exposition section once in the classical era. They would have been repeated so that you remember them. Uh, the development begins at about three minutes and fifty seconds. If you want to, if you're keeping score and you want to follow along, uh, the embellished recapitulation begins after the six minute mark, and there's a coda, which means tail, and the last two minutes, which is sort of concluding music. It's actually new material. Uh, very beautiful, structurally satisfying, easy on the ear. A great place to start. The second movement, Allegro, Moderato, Allegro. So this comes across as a sort of scherzo with its ABA structure. A scherzo was what, this is what Beethoven substituted in place of the traditional menuet and trio. Um, so these aren't really dancey, so I'm calling them a scherzo. There's an energetic, jumpy first theme with a contrasting middle section. And um, so it's, there's an ABA within the big ABA section okay followed by the moderato middle section again um, um, after a minute and 30 seconds there's a legato very slow section that has a very longing quality to it and this goes on until about the four minute and 45 second mark where the opening allegro repeats there's a brief closing coda again very traditionally classical the third movement andante these are often the meat of these sort of um works um it's very it's very um traditional and song-like um my new york accent came out there song it's a song song-like song -like. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> okay traditional and song-like uh opening melody in the violin harmonized by the second violin i think and the rest of the parts fill in from top to bottom which i always enjoy hearing that's a really nice uh approach uh, there's a bit of contrapuntal writing between the two violins and the viola and cello. Um, it morphs into brief question and answer patterns where one um, instrument will end the phrase of the other. Really gorgeous writing in this movement. I liked it a lot. The music speeds up as it goes and gets more urgent and tense. It hits a peak and then quiets down suddenly after the four-minute mark. Now, that's going to be kind of a... Uh, technique that uh, Carnivicius is going to use very often, especially in the next three uh, quartets, and we're hearing it really for the first time here. Um, it builds until the end. I enjoyed hearing the separate voices with the melody here, very clear writing. The fourth movement, Allegro, has a dance-like folky melody in the opening, and this movement sort of works like a rondo, so that opening dancey melody keeps coming back after these more cerebral sort of um, sections that interrupt it. Um, the third time the theme comes back, it's introduced as a fugue. with uh, a little uh, departure from tradition here. With instruments entering one by one and then reaches its normal profile. Um, kind of an interesting technique there. 
There's still a minor feeling to this, but the relative weightlessness of the rhythms makes the piece lighten up, and we end with a sense of familiarity and lack of fear of the dark. I feel like um, Carnivish's, this is a very, a very minor sounding piece. There's a lot of darkness in it. And at the end of this piece, he doesn't dispel the dark, but he's gotten us to live with it, sort of. And that's really, I feel like, what this piece is about. It's like we're dancing with our fear. Uh, form and fat chords played in unison end the piece. And I liked it. It was inventive, very easy to uh, follow. And it's a beautiful, clear recording, by the way. Uh, we're really hitting a big on recording quality this week, aren't we? Yeah, everything sounds really mm. well recorded. The first album is yeah, phenomenal. And this one is good too. Yeah, I agree. Three with jazz you albums that. are as well. We'll get to those yeah. when we get there. Um, though. This one, as a composer I hadn't heard before, I thought as a uh, initiation, it was quite attractive. It's easily approachable. Uh, it's mercurial uh, as mm. uh, I believe all of these are more and more as we go on through them. Uh, more and he, more, exactly. He changes... Um, up the mood and uh, key and everything quite easily, uh, but they're in familiar structures, so uh, there's always something to hold on to that makes them easily approachable uh, for you know something from this time period. It's uh, not being a true modernist, I guess. And uh, as you say, I like how after all of the changes that you go through in these various structures, the fourth movement in this one ends with this kind of sonority. Uh, hmm. that sort of brings you back to a steady base with some kind of gravitas at right. the ending. And I thought it was a nice way to end uh, this. But uh, yeah, a you know, something from this time period, but it it hints at structures that are traditional going back to classical music, so you won't feel alienated uh, or uh, left out right. as far as structure and compositional techniques. Yeah, in fact, in that first uh, string quartet, hints is like, yeah, I wouldn't say it even hints at yeah, it. It really just follows. It's yeah, it's follows very, this, it very, basically follows that. Now, he'll start kind of, he'll, he'll sort of hang the his material in the next three quartets on those sort of structures, but he'll sort of break them he apart more and more bit, as they yeah. go. Yeah, and in fact, I think string quartet number two, which is the uh, second work on the first album that we're talking about and the last one on this album, Written in 1917, this is his Opus 6, um, gets a little bit further away from tradition. And this will happen in the third and fourth quartets even more so. Um, we're starting to hear more and more who Carnivicious is starting with the second quartet. Because I started hearing certain sort of techniques that he used over and over again in those, um, those next three works. This particular piece was uh, the second string quartet. This is on the uh, album String Quartets 1 and 2. Uh, this was written while Carnivicious was in captivity during the war. So he stayed in captivity until the end of the war, I guess. Um, the booklet, by the way, for this um, album says there's a special finesse to the sound in this work. I don't, I don't know. It just sounds like he's developing his style to me. There are a lot of contrasts in drama, which the booklet mentions. Uh, he didn't, Carnivicious didn't get to hear this piece performed in St. Petersburg in 1923. But five, what is that? Boy, that's like six years after it was written. Mm. Um, it may have been performed in the camp he was imprisoned in. Concerts were held <laughs> often there. Um, this, you know, we know the Messiaen story, right? About the, the quartet for the end of the time was performed in a prisoner of war camp. These don't, I mean, they, they sound like there's a lot of hardship, but there was uh, there was art going on there, which is at least uh, mm. quasi-humane, I would think, you know? 
Yeah, different times, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, this particular quartet this is a pretty big work. Uh, the f- it's a four-movement work. The first three movements clock in at ten minutes or more, and the last is almost ten minutes. So uh, there's <laughs> it's a lot of listening to do. All right, the first movement again. It's a sonata, but I didn't I didn't realize this at first. It's it's labeled allegro molto moderato to allegro moderato, so it has a very long, um, dark, mournful opening. This is kind of an introduction before the main themes are introduced. And it starts in the cello and viola. Uh, the violas expand the theme. The theme games life and rises. And this kind of rising quality is something that we'll hear a lot in the next um, two quartets as well. It seems to be some sort of psychological thing with Carnivicious, how he uh, communicates what he wants to communicate musically. There are a lot of stops and starts. Again, a, a technique that he's going to use a lot um, is the mood suddenly changes. The, the music will just stop and then re- resume in some other direction. This is uh, a Carnivicious technique that he will use often. Uh, the moods range from despair to anxiety. So that's not happy music here. It's pretty dark. It's all minor key with fleeting glimpses of major light. We, we do get a little... You know, it's kind of like looking through like the slats of a like a blind or something like that, you know, or covering a window and you get a little bit of sunlight in there, but it's mostly dark. Okay, there's a longer, more melodic theme emerges after the four-minute mark, and this is really where the, I think, the sonata part opens. It's not exactly clear, but the sonata movement starts about here. I noticed this was a sonata only when I started hearing those themes again at the end. It was it was a sort of hard to follow because he's pretty inventive with uh, the form here. Um, there are a lot of mood changes and a lot of these pauses as the movement goes on. Um, uh, certain harmonizations are very moving, make the, make the, uh, music really moving. And, um, the moods are very fleeting as well. So it was kind of hard to concentrate on the thematic material. It just kind of comes and just sort of evaporates and goes on to something else. But this is in a sonata form. There is a coda, by the way, right at the very end. It's it's very short, only about a minute long. Second movement, Allegretto, Sostenuto Allegretto. Just that marking tells you that this is sort of a menuet and trio type movement. In this case, I would say scherzo. Scherzo, by the way, means joke, and the joke was on the menuet and trio form. It was kind of like it's mocking that form in a way when it started anyway. So it, it works like a traditional uh, scherzo. The first section is fast and folk-like with simple memorable melody. And it gets a bit histrionic as it rushes along. The B section starts, I even wrote this down exactly, 3 minutes and 27 seconds. You can start the B section or follow along exactly if you're listening on digital media. There's a big pause to prepare you for it. It's easy to spot. And the B section is slow and dusky, kind of sad, with mutes on the instruments. They're very quiet. The main theme returns at 5 minutes 53 seconds with some changes. And this is a surprisingly long movement for the form it takes. Menuets are usually pretty short, you know, but this takes 10 minutes to 
play out. The repeat of section A should be labeled A1 in this case because it's got fast folk-like theme, but it's got some pauses and musical commentary scattered between, so it sort of expands on what we heard the first time. There's lots of unexpected stuff which make this movement move out of this traditional kind of form a bit. And that's reassuring because it means that this composer is kind of working with um, our expectations or against them. And that's always interesting. The Andante movement, a dark theme again. This is a pretty dark piece, really. Um, in the cello and or viola, I'm not really sure, but it, it might be the viola. We hear melodic themes with figuration around them that stop and give way to similar new themes. The movement sounds hesitant. And um, the pausing that we heard so much in the first movement seems to be integral to the whole piece because we're hearing it a lot in this movement. Um, this movement also seems to be climbing towards something. I mentioned earlier that um, Carnivisius music tends to rise towards something and it sounds more and more positive. And then it'll sort of like go down and as sort of despair sets in again. And then there'll be a pause and some quiet, despairing music. Um, this kind of felt like to me the the rising theme sounded like the uh, like vines growing up a surface of a wall or something like that. It felt like it was reaching for something higher. The fourth movement is labeled Allegro, and it has this ghostly floating theme in three. I think of... Um, if you think of Beethoven's um, Tempest Sonata, like the last movement of that, da-da-na-na, it has that kind of floaty sort of feeling to it. And it gains intention and rains down the scale when it reaches its peak. And there's a second slow theme to this too. This is also going to be something that we're going to hear a lot in the next two quartets as well. So Carnivicius has apparently... Um, uh, had this um, sort of... Uh, 3-4 rhythm and this sort of floating quality of the melody has some kind of meaning to him. So maybe I imagine maybe something like Escape or something like that. Anyway, that's the end of the first CD. Now, that one, the, the, the two works I first worked with are on one album, and that was released uh, in March this year, so it was a long time ago. The um, String Quartets 3 and 4 were released more recently, I think around September. And um, this particular um, one starts with uh, String Quartet number three, of course, written in 1922. Um, this is his Opus 10. The two works on this album, String Quartets three and four, were composed in St. Petersburg, which is already known as Petrograd by then, and uh, it was Leningrad when the fourth String Quartet was written. <laughs> that must be confusing, huh? Mm. The third no place quartet, like home. <laughs> no place like home, yeah. As long as you know what to call home. Where it is. <laughs> yeah. The third quartet is dedicated to the memory of Antonio Stradivari, of all people, the great 17th century or early 18th, late 17th or early 18th century violin maker from Cremona, Italy, whose Stradivarius violins are very famous around the world. Um, I have no idea why he would dedicate this work to um, this violin maker. It doesn't really sound... It has, I guess, a few Baroque elements in it, but it's really not a Baroque work. It's fairly dark, again. Uh, both of these works are. But they're all highly listenable. I don't want to turn the listeners off and say, oh, they're dark works, they're gonna, they're depressing and stuff. They're really not. They're, they're, they're very listenable. They're, they're... The first string quartet was really beautiful, but I wouldn't, call, I wouldn't use that word for the uh, second, third, and fourth. But they are interesting, and they're very listenable. 
Okay, this third string quartet uses unconventional approaches to traditional elements. And it wasn't published, it was written in 1922, it wasn't published until 1969. Uh, and it was premiered by the Lithuanian Quartet. Yeah, boy, talk about lo- waiting a long time. I don't know, sorry, I had to reach for a tissue there. And then another half century of oblivion followed. And now we have this recording. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the least well-known of the three of the four string quartets, I guess. Um, this and the fourth and the fourth quartet are characterized by an anxious, chromatically saturated tonality inherited from late Romanticism. So Wagner, let's say. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of um, chr- chromatic chromaticism chromatic means that you're using all 12 notes but it's not 12 tone writing uh there's a sense of harmony of traditional harmony but when you put chromatic notes in that harmony the direction of the music becomes clouded in in chromatic right you don't really know where it's headed it's it's almost like walking in a fog let's say if you're listening so you might want to think about that when you're listening to these um works there are traces of bright classical musical tradition in the third quartet but not in the fourth anyway let's talk about the third quartet the third and fourth quartets both have only three movements so they're shorter than the first two the first one again is a sonata form uh it starts harmoniously with chords played in the ensemble um this um movement has a theme with fleet scale playing up and down the neck of the instruments which I think vaguely calls the Baroque, recalls the Baroque era, maybe, I don't know. But I didn't really think of the, if if I hadn't read that note, I wouldn't have thought of Baroque music at all, listening to this piece. Um, there are lots of pauses in the music before new material is heard. So he's really putting this new sort of technique to work in this uh, particular um, composition. Uh, the tonality tends to climb and brighten as it develops, and then it's suddenly cut off. It's an interesting fragmentary approach carried over from the second quartet, except developed more here. And no doubt we'll re- this will reveal more in repeated listenings. Um, I need to hear this piece more times, to be honest, too, in order to uh, really assess what's going on here. It was a little uh, hard with all the um, constant changes of um, material after all the pauses. Okay, the material repeats at the end of the movement, and that tells me that this was a sonata. But I didn't really follow the form because of all this, the sudden stops and starts. And the themes aren't, I don't want to say they're not memorable, but they're not something that sticks in the brain. You really have to pay attention if you're going to follow this piece. Um, Now that I've heard it once, I mean, I can go back and probably follow it a little better the next time and then more the next time. I'm pretty intellectually intrigued by this music at this point, and I want to know more about it. Okay, the second movement is an allegro, which is a little unusual. Usually this, the middle movement of a three-movement work is slow. But uh, this one started with a slow movement, and uh, the second movement is an allegro. It starts at a moderate tempo. The melody moves upward, characteristic of his of Karavishis' music. And this almost 12-minute movement continues with these stops and starts. Uh, there's something almost uh, Sisyphean <laughs> about it. It's like you're pushing a rock up a mountain like Sisyphus mm. did, pausing, and then you have to start again. I guess the rock rolled down the mountain. I don't really hear anything. Of, maybe the metaphor doesn't fit exactly. But there are pauses, and then you, it seems like they're starting again, a new approach. Mm. It rises, stops, laments, rises again, ends plaintively. 
Okay, the third and final movement is labeled Lento Tranquilo, also uh, subverting expectations. Usually third movements or final movements are very lively. This one is very slow. It's the longest movement at uh, 13 and a half minutes. It starts slowly and thoughtfully on the cello. There's a pause. The entire ensemble plays a slow melody and accompaniment together. There's a solo line for what could be the viola. I, I can't really tell the viola and cello sometimes. The cello is playing high and the viola is in its low range. I can't always tell them apart. Then the interweaving lines of the ensemble melody continues. There's a pause. At 2 minutes 30 seconds, an entirely new uh, tranquil descending tonality begins. Uh, another pause. At 3 minutes, there's an energetic rising melody with a floating 3-4 rhythm. We're going to hear that a lot in his music, as I said. Rising tonality again. Moods vary between energetic and melancholy as the movement wears on with pauses separating these moods at every chance they get, really. The solo cello reappears at about the 6 minute and 20 second mark. Viola and cello get solo lines from this point to up to 8 minutes and 30 seconds. Then the ensemble starts climbing upward again with sudden dissonant chords cutting off the motion and melancholy themes after the pauses. Okay, the movement seems to con communicate frustration to me. At the very end, there's a determined rhythm heading towards a climax, which it ultimately doesn't reach in a satisfying way. The music cuts off before any final grand statement can be made. And that's the uh, string quartet number three. The final string quartet number four from 1925 uh, has three movements, and uh, they're all very polyphonic meaning all the instruments have their own material to play. They're not necessarily playing chords. This work was never published. Uh, the Trillionis Quartet performed it in Lithuania in the 1980s, and now we have this recording by the Vilnius Quartet. First movement, Moderato Comodo. It sets kind of a disconcerting tone according to the booklet. It starts with that 3-4 rhythm, the floating quality 3-4 rhythm that Curlionis uses so often in these works. Uh, he usually uses them in the last movements. Here he begins to work with it. Um, we start hearing the pauses we've heard in the previous two quartets. The melody breaks down into a squeaky chordal interpretation. And then there are these insistent sawing notes in the harmony. Um, the music quiets a bit after this. And it always returns to its flowing three-four time melody, but breaks up. This pattern and material becomes familiar after a while. Uh, the movement is hard to follow, but if the first time you're listening, but it's in sonata form, and it and this is confirmed with the repeat of the opening material around the seven-minute mark. This movement does seem a little off, though. It's it doesn't really feel like it's really like a cookie cutter sort of sonata form. It's discon it's disconcerting in that it's hard to make out what's what it's after what the movement. How do I want to say this? It's uh, hard to make out. What it's what the movement's after, what it's trying to say. That said, it's tone. It is tonal. There's a lot of chromaticism, and it's very listenable, meaning that it's not off-putting. You won't be turned off by it. The second movement, Andante, has a kind of melancholy. The booklet says Tristanian melancholy. That recalls Wagner. So it, we're thinking late Romanticism here. Um, this uh, movement starts immediately after the first movement. They're not connected, but uh, there's no pause, really. The, it just goes right into the second movement. Uh, this movement emerges out of the second movement, you could say. It sounds very forlorn 
and then it uh, quickly turns uh, dramatic in its outbursts. There's a rising figure ending in a chord that repeats at the end of the cello's lament. Uh, this movement is also in that flowing 3-4 rhythm. He seems to like that uh, meter to set the flowing feel and then inter- interrupt it with oddly placed accents. Uh, the music stays in the emotional dynamic described for the whole movement, and by the end, uh, the emotional byways of the movement brings us to we arrive at the opening with the cello's lament, and um, that's how the movement ends. It doesn't really uh, move in its mood from where it was. The third movement is labeled Allegro Animato, and it starts with this um, what's labeled in the booklet as Scriabinesque Swiftness and Ecstasy, although ecstasy isn't really a word I'd... Um, apply to this movement. The opening sounds urgent and determined. It's got a wide striding rhythm at the opening. Uh, the motivic elements use a dotted eighth figure. So every time there's climbing, you hear the dotted eighth. Dun, 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 dun. That would be a dotted eighth. Uh, there's a second theme without the motif, and all the notes are landing on the beats in this case. So there are no um, dotted rhythms here. It's just kind of one beat, one note per beat. Emotionally, there's a lot of resignation once the second theme begins. After three minutes, the motion slows even further. Something more energetic starts at about 4.15. We get the dotted rhythms again. Uh, in fact, those dotted rhythms seem to indicate when the um, sort of protagonist of this movement gains energy. And then the um, notes on the beat indicate a kind of a decreasing of energy. The energy seems to break down when the musical material starts landing on the beats, and the movement ends on an upward movement. It sounds like there could be another movement, but there isn't. This is the end of the uh, work. Okay, string quartet number one is pretty easy to follow. The next three are very idiosyncratic to the composer, although they're kind of in a traditional form. It's all very beautifully played by the Vilnius String Quartet, and um, with more familiarity, I think this um, these three works will add more enjoyment. They're they're a little uh, I don't want to say dense. They're a little uh, tough to follow the first time, but um, that's always I see that as a good thing because it invites repeated listening. Anyway, I enjoyed these, and I think they'd be a good discovery for people who would want to hear something something new. I think they're all approachable. If you're familiar with, um, you know, traditional classical forms and sort of romantic uh, chamber music, the the third and fourth quartets are more uh, overall. I would say they're more placid in character, just because they don't have that folky quality of motion that yeah, he, uh, he just did away with that, didn't he? Yes, yeah, especially <laughs> number one and number two to a certain extent, although not as much as number one has. And as I said, my first impression was that they were kind of Brahms-inspired. Uh, but that starts to go away uh, in two, and then you don't have that at all in uh, three and four, but you do get more adventurous harmonies. At the same time, I I felt the kind of <laughs> uh, mercurial nature that he does show right from the beginning. Oh, mercurial is uh, a good word. I wish I had thought of that. Yeah, yeah it, it it's intensified as sort of his kind of stylistic um, thing. They're constantly changing. and But what's interesting and kind of satisfying is that the pauses that he tends to include, those also kind of intensify. So 
as he is yeah. changing these contrasting sections, he he seems to also emphasize those pauses more, which is a good thing as a listener, uh, because yeah. there's a lot to digest uh, from what you just heard into what he's always going to uh, in, in something new within these uh, sections. And then, you know, the other thing is that these are really long movements. Yeah, you know, they are. Not, <laughs> they're not four or five minutes. They're, You're up to 11. demanding on the attention. Yeah, yeah, 10, 11, 12 minutes. And so you, you need those pauses to sort of digest what you've just heard and what's coming next. But, you know, in they are long, but in those segments, they are sort of uh, digestible and uh, understandable, but they will take repeated listens Uh However, yeah. I think it's worth your investment. Uh, it's something new, especially in this kind of uh, quartet, you know, chamber music format. It's something you haven't probably heard before. I know I haven't. Uh, yeah, it's based in fact, on- no, no, unless you're unless you're Lithuanian, you haven't heard yeah. these works because they're they haven't been recorded before. So it's based in the very familiar uh, repertoire, yet it's something different, and he has his own concept he's developing from that. So, uh, in that sense, I think it these. Uh, quartets sort of uh, give you th- that nice balance in music, which is you know s- enough familiar, comprehensible elements to grasp onto, while introducing enough of novelty and change and uniqueness that will challenge your listening. And in that sense, yeah, it's it's a uh, gratifying and uh, sort of. Uh, edifying new listening experience and in that way i enjoyed them yeah i should mention that they're they're, they're not cheerful works <laughs> no, so it's a little bit of darkness to them so yeah, they're uh, dark they're not yeah. dirges but um yeah i guess yeah. if you knowing that he was they're in intellectual captiv- you know kind of yeah. like cutting these kind of you know if he was bit. in captivity while these were going on i guess i could i know all right you're not gonna write like a sunny yeah. work really yeah <laughs> no yeah. all right anyway <laughs> Anyway, recommended. Give give these a listen. It's something new. It's something we should know about. Speaking of um, things we should know about, we should know about contemporary composers. And the next, my last choice for today, is another contemporary composer. I'm I'm really happy with myself for having been able to program a contemporary composer for the last three episodes, and I'm going to have another one next week, hopefully. Oh. Uh, <laughs> although an old an older one. Okay, You're but hip today with the in crowd, uh, the You're in crowd. Up with <laughs> Yeah, these are people I want to hang out with. (laughs) (laughs) Contemporary works. This this is basically the classical music that people don't listen to, and they should because this is your contemporary music. I want to recommend it, and I really want to encourage listeners to uh, give, especially this this album, a listen. This particular one. This is uh, by the composer, French composer, Eric Tanguy. He was born in Cayenne in 1968, so he's our contemporary, Russ. Mm. Um, this is a, an album of three, two concertos, actually, the clarinet concerto and violin concerto number two. And there's a brief orchestra work separating them called Matka, which has a Finnish theme to it. This is also on the Ondine label, I guess appropriately a Finnish label for the um, Sibelius-inspired work Matka. Okay, this, the performance on this album, on the clarinet, solo clarinet, and the clarinet concerto is Pierre Genisson. Um, the violinist in the violin concerto number two is Yulia Pusker. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I couldn't find a... Uh, she's Hungarian. Um, and the Chivaskila Sinfonia, conducted by 
Vil Matveyev. There it is. Okay. Eric Tongi, who is he? Well, he com- he composes one of the things that, intru- that attracted me to him. He he's a modal composer, so he doesn't really use traditional major and minor um, keys and scales to write his music. He writes in modes. Modes were used in Gregorian chant and in early church music very often, and they have this floaty quality. Although I didn't get a floaty quality here from his music. Um, it doesn't have to have a floaty quality. They just chose those. There are different modes. Okay. In the program notes for this um, album, he mentions the initiative for the works. Okay. The clarinet concerto, and you don't really need to know what they are to listen to this music. You'll just be equally uh, enjoyable or confused by them, depending <laughs> on how you, how you think about them. All right, the clarinet concerto was commissioned as a work to be played at a concert that included Mozart's clarinet concerto. So this this uh, soloist was going to play this poor guy is going to play the Mozart clarinet concerto and this very difficult work. Yeah. It really sounds hard, but it's very impressive. I mean, when you hear the recording, I think you'll be impressed by the by Jenny Son's playing. And uh, the work Matka was written for the 150th anniversary of Sibelius. Uh, but neither of these works has anything to do with these works or the composers. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Anyway, they, they were just written to be played at concerts where these works were being played at. All that's right. a good. That's a, he has a marketing strategy for getting yourself on the <laughs> uh, on the program. Anyway, that's good. Okay, I, I do want to mention. I do want people listening to this and, and to contemporary composers in general, even though we're you know we're being funny. Okay, so uh, please do give this a listen. Okay, modal harmony. It the thing to understand about this. It doesn't have a direction. When you listen to something, it's in a major key or a minor key. Um, Western classical music has developed in a way, especially since Beethoven, where if you have a key and you say what that key is, the music is generally heading somewhere and you get this sense of um, heading towards what Aristotle called a telos or a goal or an end point. Modal harmony can't achieve that because the, uh, the, the notes that are used in the modal scale aren't balanced in such a way that they can resolve to something. Although I guess some of them have that sense of resolve. Major minor scales absolutely have that sense of resolve. If you listen to like, uh, if you play a scale and you stop on the seventh degree of that scale, there's extreme tension. You want to hear that tonic note again. Um, You want it to resolve. Um, That's not the case in modal music. That doesn't happen. Um, So in, in music like this, what's happening now in the moment, in what you're hearing at this moment is going to be of most importance. You could almost say this is sort of like a, a Zen Buddhist kind of a approach to music, okay? Because you have to be listening to what's happening now and enjoy the moment. <laughs> play the scale it's now. Disappear, <laughs> and you're going to go into something else. Yes. All play right. the and scale I found now, that, and yeah, don't worry about what comes next. All right. Okay. It's where the instrument is and where it winds up that's important, not where it's going. Okay. It's just kind of, and it's not like it's just meandering and not going anywhere, but it's just that the moment is really what's going to be important here. So uh, if you're spiritually inclined, I don't know, this might be, these might be good works for you to listen to. Although they don't really seem to be particularly spiritual works themselves. They're instrumental. They're absolute music, really. Okay. I need another tissue. Excuse me. All right, 
Clarinet Concerto, composed in 2017. This is a very recent work. You're you're on the cutting edge, listener. All right, for, this is a three-movement work. The first movement is labeled intense. In English, which would <laughs> simply be intense, right? Um, it starts quickly with an odd, throbbing, loud, soft, winding melody... The clarinet starts at the very bottom of its range and climbs up, and that is excellent because I love hearing the low end of the clarinet, so I was like engaged in this right away. I loved hearing that reedy bottom note of the um, the instrument. Uh, the clarinet is very busy in this movement. It often trills. There are a lot of trills, and it plays that kind of winding figure that you hear at the beginning. It has to suddenly change rhythm and melodic shape, which is also very important, um, not important, but impressive, uh, virtuosically speaking. There's a softer, more melodic section, and textures change very suddenly in the movement. The clarinet often has to leap from its bottom to the top end, difficult to do on a wind instrument. A very impressive and athletic performance from the soloist, and this is a jumpy movement that ends without resolution. The second movement is the slow one. It's labeled très doux, which means very sweet, sweetly. The orchestra starts uh, reminiscent of Bartok's night music, I thought. Um, If you think of um, Bartok's night music, it has a floaty modal sort of quality to it. Um, um, The clarinet is still pretty active despite the tempo. In this case, it trills a lot. It leaps from its middle into its high range very often. Uh, the, the clarinet never has a sense of repose in this slow movement. Usually you would think a slow movement would be a little more s- melodic, um, but not the case here. There is a quieter melodic section four minutes in, and it briefly builds to something more menacing at five minutes and 30 seconds, then it quiets again. Uh, this movement ends with haunting string harmonics as the clarinet trails off. The third movement, as many French works are labeled is labeled vif, which means very fast. The orchestra plays a few flourishes at the beginning, then the clarinet leaps all over its range, playing brief motifs. It kind of reminds me of a fly inside a house, aimlessly flying around and briefly stopping here or there. The solo instrument puts across a sense of restlessness, uh, always wandering, attention always being diverted, maybe like a modern uh, internet user. Perhaps. I don't know. It gets high up in its range at times in this movement, squealing out the top notes. You don't really hear that very often. It's a bit jazzy in this one, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're just kind of squeezing those notes out. There's an impressive cadenza inside the five-minute mark where he plays by himself. Um, Give that a listen. After the cadenza, a rhythmic figure develops, driven by the timpani. And the, the imprint of the timpani stays for the rest of the work. I'm really giving a very general view of this work. There are a lot of details. It quickly disappears and new ideas pursued. Uh, but what I want to say is there's much to hear in this work on repeated listings. I bet I bet there are a lot of details that you're going to miss the first, second, or third time that you hear this work. At uh, 6 minutes and 34 seconds, there's a big orchestral crescendo that abruptly cuts off on an accent and leads to a cadenza dramatically and first slowly taken. It ends on a high tessitura, then the orchestra quietly comes in as the violin picks up a quietly, the violin, the clarinet, picks up a quietly resigned melodic line. I wrote violin. I don't know why. 
And uh, this isn't just a showpiece. Uh, this work has a sense of drama to it, despite its modality. It's well conducted. Who uh, Matveyev uh, allows the orchestra to breathe naturally at the selected tempos. It never. This this is a modern work or contemporary work, and it never sounds mechanical or overly careful, as performances of new works can. I really liked this actually, so I think you should give it a listen. Yeah. It's um, you know the his approach to uh, harmony is different. You know he says yeah. he has his own harmonic language, so that can sort of leave you, you know, sort of uh, in a kind of a limbo. But <laughs> what he does do is he uses more traditional compositional techniques and developments. So the arc of the pieces are well constructed and so while you don't get harmonic resolutions that you expect you're pushed along by different contrasts and developments uh, in the uh, orchestration that lead you to kind of successful sort of uh, they're not harmonic cadences so to speak but they're more yeah. sort of compositional uh, uh, signposts and, oh, nice. and so, you know, he takes you through those and there's a lot of dense harmonies in the orchestra you know, they're really closely uh, arranged in the instruments uh, and they don't resolve in a traditional sense that you're expecting. Uh, but. Well, they the can't way, really. <laughs> yeah, they can't because <laughs> yeah. they're not going because to. Because of the modal harmony. Yeah. Right. Uh, however, they do resolve sort of uh, compositionally. And then, you know, there are uh, tension builds and releases in mm -hmm. the way that uh, the composition is uh, put through. And so it does give you something to latch on to uh, in sort of the arc of what's going on. And so in that way, it's kind of uh, yeah, easy to follow in a, in a traditional sort of uh, uh, tension and release type of, uh, you know, direction. Uh, there is direction in this music. It's just not a uh, harmonic. Yeah, it's not. It's uh, not harmonic direction. So. It's um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, however, if you listen, if you focus on the clarinet itself, yeah, there's lots of virtuosic uh, playing, and uh, those all seem very you know logically constructed and uh, right. having lots of uh, uh, sort of pyrotechnics and and then you know conclusions to the phrases. So. Uh, yeah, um, it's uh, modern, but yet contains enough uh, in a sort of a linear kind of uh, projection that you'll right. be able to uh, go through and notice, you know, the destination of the piece. Yeah, I'd say it's it's not difficult on the ear at all. I mean, it's it's very listenable, uh, but it's it's challenging, I guess, intellectually. I think as far as the form goes, if you're if you're somebody who knows a little bit about classical forms, uh, a modal piece can't really be a, a sonata. You, you can use modal elements in a sonata form, but mm. you can't. So the the modes can't drive the the sonata towards its its conclusion. So the way I felt like listening to this piece and really to all of the works on this CD was that if you think of a, a painted panel, you, you know those kind of panels that you know that kind of fold up and there there's a painting on them. Mm. It felt like you had you were just walking down a hall 
And there were all these sort of like different painted panels and you're just kind of like viewing them all and then the work ends at the end. So there's a direction. You're you're heading towards the end of the hole, right. <laughs> even though the panel is. But it's it's not a sense of any kind of like a big aim from the beginning. You're not ending in a place where that's sort of obvious from the beginning if you, mm. if you understand the form. Right. It, that's kind of what I got. You can't really this. modulate and yeah. then, you know, sort of... Uh, have these traditional kind of cadences there. So it, it sort right. of depends. I guess he, in that sense, in order to show his direction, he has to rely on other sort of compositional techniques rather than, uh, you know, traditional sort of ones, harmonic yeah. uh, tension and release. So, Right. Anyway, on we go. The, separating the two concerti and the, um, the meat in this particular CD sandwich or album sandwich, is uh, the symphonic work Matka, written in 2015. It's a Finnish title. And uh, Matka refers to both the idea of traveling in Finland, but at the same time to an inner journey and introspection. So if you're an introspective type, this might be the work for you. It has a cloudy, mystical opening with gentle metal percussion effects that sound like silvery raindrops. I really enjoyed hearing those. And this grows into a section featuring the winds. It kind of gradually kind of reaches that, sort of expands in a way. Uh, strings eventually enter. A crescendo ensues, leading to a climax. Then the music quietens again and starts to build up again. Uh, Tangui seems to go for orchestral shapes made by his modal harmony. Uh, there's a nice brass section in this part of the work, followed by a quiet quasi-magical bits supported by shimmering strings where the various winds get solo lines. I really enjoyed this part. I especially like the enchanting use of gentle-sounding metal percussion instruments at certain points of the movement, making the sound leap out of the, f the relatively flat texture created by the strings and winds. Solo strings get a short section near the end, particularly the violin. Uh, nice lead into the next work, which is going to be a violin concerto. Um, there's a full orchestral build-up to a bold ending led by the brass. Again, this is a work for the 21st century mind that keeps leaping to new ideas and is restless. He knows how we think, we internet users. <laughs> uh, there's real content here, though. Don't uh, think this is empty music. And there's so much detail and changes of character that the work repays repeated listenings. It's a good work for people who think they don't like contemporary music. <laughs> okay, so give that a listen if you're one of those people. Yeah, this is what uh, Sibelius dedication, right? Yeah, this is the and one that so, was dedicated to Sibelius, the 150th yeah, anniversary and, of his uh, birth, yeah, I think. And so you can't do that without a nice homage to the brass, and he does uh, insert right. that in here. And so I like that contrast between the winds and then some satisfying brass. Of course you did. Even, brass. Yeah, of course, that's what I'm always listening brass for. So I got it. Uh, <laughs> I was listening to this walking down the road, looking at the autumn colors, and I was like, oh, okay. Oh, nice. So I had read the notes, and uh, I, I remember, okay, the Sibelius, Sibelius, and then, boom, the brass hit me. I said, okay, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting uh, piece. You know, it's, it's just one movement, so... Uh, you probably have to listen to it a few times to get the yeah. arc of what's going on here, but uh, it does have, you know, tensions and releases, and uh, right. you're going to get the contrast in timbres or tones uh, throughout the work, and it has a satisfying resolution. 
Right. Okay. Now, the final work on this album is the Violin Concerto Number no. Two, written in 1997 and revised in the year 2003. We're hearing the revised version. Now, last week our um, our adult music podcast episode was called Mirror Mirror. I think right. That was the last That's one. Right. Uh, we should have probably put this um, album on that one. I wish I had sort of reversed them. Although, yeah, the uh, yeah and the Mahler were the, the mirror part for the classical music. Because this work really mirrors the clarinet concerto, or the clarinet concerto mirrors this. They're very similar. They're on three mm. movements. Um, this was written 20 years before the clarinet concerto, but the three move- movements virtually have the same tempo markings, and the work unfolds in a similar way. Okay, the first movement is called Intense et très lyrique. Uh, the violin solo begins the piece, which is unusual. Although these days, I guess, you can do anything you want, really. Um, uh, the orchestra shadows its melody. Repeat, And when I say shadow, what I mean is it repeats part of it. Sort of like a shadow is kind of like part of your sort of um, body. It doesn't show your whole outline. Um, so it shadows part of the melody. The solo goes into a high tessitura. Uh, Tessitura means the entire range of the instrument that's being written for. It's important for a composer to know an an instrument's tessitura so he can write appropriately for it. But this is the higher end of the violin that the violin can play in. Uh, Very early on, we hear these kind of um, really high notes in the violin. The violin is very busy throughout the movement, as was the clarinet. This seems to be a feature of Tanguy's concertos, I could say. Again, there are many quick changes of orchestral texture, solo melody, and rhythm. Though this time, the piece stays with its ideas longer. I think um, with the clarinet concerto, which came 28, 20 years later, um, he's, a, he, uh, he's a bit more compact with his ideas. Here, he tends to kind of lengthen them a bit so that we get a little more familiar with them. There's a fair amount of... A fair amount of the movement has lyrical playing on the violin, but it doesn't stay that way for long. As in the clarinet concerto, there's a solo cadenza for the uh, violin concerto at about the 6 minute and 30 second mark, and it's pretty tranquil, unlike the clarinet concerto. Um, There's a shimmering orchestral section after the cadenza that builds up to something foreboding for the solo violin to get jittery over, and it plays a pretty excitable melody um, or figuration. Uh, the orchestra is reminiscent of waves crashing against a cliff. It's got that sort of held back energy that suddenly crescendos with accents on the timpani. So it's kind of like pulling back and then slowly crescendos and then poof, you know. Um, the movement ends with the violin playing a dramatic high line um, and landing on a big orchestral accent. It's really cool, actually. I like the ending, the way this particular movement ended. The second movement is marked dolce, or sweet, again, similar to the clarinet concerto. It begins with another, the driftiness, reminiscent of Bartok's light music, night music, as the clarinet concerto did. Uh, The violin drifts above it, in this case. The orchestral accompaniment grows eerie, and mostly through the vibrato-less winds, as the violin becomes more agitated. When this happened, by the way, I listened to this whole album in one sitting. Okay, I didn't like listen to one piece at a time. At this point in the second movement of the Violin Concerto, um, I was in an interesting mental state. Um, I had this soft but very direct focus on what I was hearing. 
hearing this entire album changed the state of my mind. So if you're one of these people who wants to change the state of your mind, this might be the album to go for. I was really locked in to what was happening and wide awake. You know, it was that was that this um, the sound coming out of the speakers was the only thing that existed in the world. So this this uh, music sort of released me, or hearing all of this up to now released me. You might want to try that. I think it had a lot to do with the music not having a. Well, I said not having a direction. We already said it has a direction, but what I mean is it doesn't have a harmonic direction because of the modal harmony. So my brain just tried to be with it as it moved from place to place. Mm. I think it eventually kind of caught up with that. It wasn't quite a spiritual state, though, so if you're if you're somebody who meditates, <laughs> don't get too excited. Uh, the, piece, the, the movement ends quietly with the gentle strings fading out. And then the third movement, the final movement, marked vif, as in the clarinet concerto. The violin saws away on double-stop notes as this movement begins. There's some very cool brass in chorale-like chords after one minute. And then the violin becomes hyperactive again. Uh, this sounds really challenging and tiring to play. <laughs> really, um, modern... Any, any soloist playing a modern concerto or a contemporary concerto is really almost like a superman of his instrument <laughs> they may really make them do incredible things there's a kind of rhythmic drive that develops in the orchestra that spurs the violin on it all suddenly stops and the violin plays a rather melancholy solo line and then erupts into hyperactivity again after the orchestral comments there are a lot of interesting combinations of orchestral timbres supporting the violin line I thought this work had interesting ideas, but it wasn't as inventively orchestrated as the clarinet concerto, although it's similarly shaped. Uh, Tangui apparently learned a few things in 20 years. So I thought this album, all in all, was enjoyable, but it was a bit demanding, okay, the, intellectually. it's I thought it was tiring to listen to, but then again, I listened to the whole thing at once. Uh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Uh, the constant changes in the orchestra writing and rhythmic and melodic profiles made me tired after the 74 minutes. Um, this is quick-changing, high-information music. <laughs> I, I wrote down that it's... it. Do you remember... The, if anyone's seen the matrix you remember when they um kind of connect neo to the the matrix and he learns like kung fu in three seconds like the entirety of kung fu i i kind of felt like something like that happened to me <laughs> when i listened to this album like the like the entire internet or something or the entire some entire, entirety of something was loaded into my brain uh there's a lot of stuff here um <laughs> okay I wonder how much Tangui can do with modal harmony in large-scale works. It's tiring, but a rewarding listen. I enjoyed this, too. This is just a great listening week for me. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed this uh, because uh, I felt that in the sort of modern stream of music, it's a composer who gives me sort of the branch hmm. uh, or a life jacket. <laughs> as I go along the stream mm. of the composition. And what that I mean by that is, uh, I'm, I admit my biases, I'm, I'm sort of a uh, traditionalist uh, in, you know, the music that I like in any genre. I'm kind of like that too, but I like to be challenged. Though. I like I to be challenged, be yeah. yeah. Uh, so if it's in, uh, well, it doesn't matter the genre really, whether it's classical or jazz, uh, I, I like... Um, to have as much familiar elements as I can. Uh, and then 
the inventive part, you know, can be a large percentage of that if it's based around uh, sort of a established structure. So when we uh, disengage an important one of the three elements, you know, harmony, in other words, we have a mm. composer who says, I use my own harmonic language, and uh, which he <laughs> that's identifies. A, that's always a terrifying <laughs> statement. <laughs> uh, uh, and then we, we, so we take one of the major elements and someone reinvents that. Uh, you know, if I'm going to be able to follow along, uh, especially on an initial listen, uh, I'm going to need a lot uh, to help me get through that. Right. Uh, and so I think in, in that sense, he does really well with the, the development arc of the compositions and, uh, you're not going to have the harmonic resolutions and modulations and things that you're going to, you know, expect as a listener of, um, Baroque and classical music or romantic music, classical music in general before, you know, sort of contemporary periods. But he incorporates enough of the sort of uh, compositional development to keep you satisfied and intrigued. And uh, he also, you know, varies the uh, sort of uh, uh, usage of timbre and the instruments really well too. Uh, so you don't get, uh, you know, one thing about modes, because modes don't resolve, you can sort of get zoned out in right. a mode. I right? think that's what I happened mean, to me by the second yeah, movement of the violin. Like concert, Irish really, music, something happens. Irish music or something, you know, you can sort of... Like you know, Irish reels, like dance music, you yeah, mean, the ones that yeah, kind of yeah, circle yeah, around yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. You can sort of, you know, you start, yeah. you know, unless you bang your head when you're dancing to it, you're not going to wake up from it or something. Um well, that music's written to be danced to, though. It's yeah. not really supposed no, to be listened to. But what I mean to. is, he um, yeah. it, it, within the modes, there's there's enough variety here of instrumentation, and he does play with the colors and the other sort of developments. Uh, so there are, uh, how can I say, tension and release non-harmonically built up through uh, the dynamics and the contrasting sections of the orchestra. So what it's sort of like that element of, uh, how can I say, a larger compositional uh, structure building to climaxes and things Rem that if you could extract the harmony from that and reconfigure it, what he's done, that similar arc of other things with crescendos and variants of tone is still there in his music. Uh, right. So he's sort of focused on reinventing the harmony in his own style, but most of the other elements in the use of the full orchestra with contrasts and uh, dynamics is still there uh, for you to latch on to. And, and so I was looking for that and I, I found enough of that to pull me through uh, all of the movements. And then, um, I could, on a second listen, I could appreciate more uh, of the other things that were going on. So in that sense, I think it's still approachable uh, modern music uh, that will sort of... Uh, I think it's very approachable. Yeah, it's, yeah, not, it's not hard. It's just like kind of dense. I think that's the only thing that... Yeah, I don't that, think that would put people off, but it's just sort of overwhelming, no, like all these ideas coming at you at the same time. Yeah, and, you know? and the harmonic language as he says that he develops it, it is kind of thick and dense uh i mean you can do different things with modal kind of music you can kind of keep it open voice but his is there are dense harmonies 
in there that you uh, you know you you'll you, know, you say oh this is really thick uh, here yeah. as it's going on and, and then it will change to something else based because there's a lot of rhythmic variation too which you need if you're going to stay in certain modes but yeah I mean it's it's interesting stuff and uh, it. In the structure, uh, you've got enough to hold on to to pull you through uh, the sort of mysterious uh, modal things that he works with sometimes. So, uh, yeah, it's worth a listen and will stretch your imagination a little bit uh, for the arc of these modern works. Right. I just I just want to say to the listeners, um, if we've talked you out of listening to this piece, I think you should just go listen to it and then listen to what we have to say about it, because uh, I know it's 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 not possible to understand what we're talking about well, without having heard the work first. So, well, give, you, so give that a listen. Well, you know, when you get to things that you're not used to listening to, it makes yeah, it even like harder this. to explain and talk I about. Know. So, and you explain so, it, and then, and then the listeners haven't heard the word; they have no idea what it sounds yeah, like. It's really and then hard you're saying to, all these things. Yeah, it's, it's really it's hard to a, explain these uh, works. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to actually hear it and then right. relate to it a little bit better. Anyway, that's what the links are for, listeners. So let's try that. Okay, that's all we have for classical this week. And I want to say that if I had to like make a list of which I enjoy, which of these recordings I enjoyed most this week, uh, the three jazz recordings would be numbers one, two, and three. This was this was a really great. These were really great picks this week. This is a great jazz week for me. Oh, that's great because yeah. um, you know I had this growing list of uh, jazz albums and. Uh, I had so many, I thought, well, uh, not that I'm necessarily going to all introduce them in uh, instrumentation, but just to get myself a frame of reference, I started grouping them uh, according to what they featured. And uh, over the uh, course of time since the summer, I noticed, okay, I've got this album and this album, and the leaders are all drummers. And so they just popped out in my mind. I said, okay, I've got... Uh, you know, these three releases where uh, the uh, featured leader is a drummer, which doesn't happen very often. Not that it's unusual because, uh, you know, we have in in jazz, uh, of course, uh, Art Blakey, Max Roach uh, as, uh, you know, sort of leaders of groups. But we don't normally have the drummer as the lead figure uh, in yeah, a lot of recordings. Even back in the day, Chick Webb, right? Was a, yeah, Chick Webb. Yeah. I mean, there's other Shelly Mann, uh, yeah. you know, um, uh, but here uh, we've got three that have come out recently. It, and I, I want to say that's a shame because it seems like drummers are the best leaders in ensembles for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into today. Yeah. And uh, so we've got a uh, kind of nice variety within the drum leaders here, too. Uh, and, uh, well... I didn't realize it when I had first written this down, but the first one is a double album. Uh, oh, it's there. Okay. Yeah, yeah go to go on. And so we're going to start out with um, Songs from My Father, which is kind of, I guess, maybe in a jazz world, a, pl a play, because uh, uh, the uh, Horace Silver... Yeah, the very uh, famous Horace Silver uh, song album. for My Father. Uh, yeah. This is Songs from My Father by uh, Jerry Gibbs, uh, and, of course, his father would be uh, Terry Gibbs, uh, the great uh, vibraphonist uh, whose uh, career stretches back to the bebop era. I mean, he played with the 
the bebop greats, uh, even Charlie Parker, I believe. And he's still alive. I, at, uh, I think he's like 97 he's 94, years old. I think I read. 97 yeah, so, years uh, old. 97, jeez. Yeah. And, uh, he looks so, pretty uh, good in the photos I saw. So Yeah, uh, amazing career. He started out as a drummer and percussionist and then uh, switched to uh, focusing on uh, vibes. Uh, this is on uh, Wailing City Sound Records, which I've never heard of before. I don't know yeah, if We should a, mention, by the way, his son, Jerry Gibbs, is a drummer. Yeah. Is the drummer. This is all, we did say drummer-led, but I just want to make that yeah, so, uh, connection clear. Yeah, so Jerry's a... Uh, a drummer extraordinaire. Uh, yeah, he certainly uh, is. <laughs> with lots of uh, uh, different ensembles. And this is his, uh, in his own uh, releases, this is his 13th release as a uh, leader, as a drummer. Uh, he's also multi-percussionist. Uh, and you'll hear on this album some Brazilian percussion uh, done yeah. really well. And so the idea here, um, and uh, what of his concepts of his leaders is he's had uh, a trio, which he calls his uh, Thrasher Dream Trio, which right. is sort of like more like metal music or something, but I it's know, not right. that at all. Um, yeah. uh, so to honor his father, uh, he picked uh, 18 songs uh, from many of the tunes that his uh, father had uh, written and recorded, uh, his original compositions, and reinterpreted them uh, in his own uh, sense with modern arrangements and then inside of the uh, corona virus pandemic he went on uh, sort of uh, journeys around the country to uh, record these with his uh, picks of trios and this include the giants of our time uh, to uh, record with and while this album claims I don't know maybe we'll find out later because I think I've read this about several other recordings, but the last recorded performance of Chick Corea. Uh, yeah, that's what Chick Corea's agent said, according oh, okay. to so, Jerry Gibbs. So it probably is. I mean, this probably is probably the last then, recorded yeah. performance of Chick Corea. Because we heard him uh, a few weeks ago with uh, Ileani Elias uh, right. in uh, with... Uh, uh, and he has, a, too, yeah, he has so. a new live album out too that we didn't uh, talk about so I don't know not yet, maybe we yeah, should do so, that one too is that on the uh, list? <laughs> not really uh, but yeah we should put it on we could put it on know. there wouldn't mind anyway this that. may if his agent says this is the last one then it's pr probably true uh, but we're not only going to get uh, Chick Corea here and uh, in combination Ron Carter but uh, yeah, wow. also, also uh, Kenny Barron, who we're going to hear on our next album as well, yes, uh, in a tasty uh, recording situations. Uh, but the bassist Buster Williams, uh, another fine pianist Patrice Ruchin, uh, the great organist Larry Goldings, uh, another technically amazing pianist, uh, yeah, Jeff Keezer. And, uh, of course, the master of modern bass, Christian McBride. So, yeah. uh, I think, I think Christian was... McBride would be to, to contemporary what Ron Carter was to the, uh, like the, the golden age of jazz really yeah. in the sixties and fifties. I think he's going to, you know, yeah. and be like so this. Jerry Gibbs was really, uh, uh, going all out to get all these recordings done with these different groups and, uh. And his own uh, drum playing is just fabulous. And so we've got on this uh, double album uh, sort of alternating uh, tunes with these various uh, groups with a variety of moods uh, and things from 
compositions from his father. And, uh, and this is just a, a great double album that, uh, yeah, one it, album, it, one disc wouldn't have been enough for no, this. This is just so it, fantastic. It's it's <laughs> well worth two, and um, it, it's got enough uh, variety and brilliant musicianship. Uh, it could have just kept going, uh, and so well. Let's go through it. Uh, it starts yeah. out with a tune, uh, "Kick Those Feet," and this is with uh, well, all of these have Gibbs on drums, just the bass and piano changes. So the first tune is with Kenny Barron on piano, Buster Williams on bass. It's a swinging minor melody that uh, has some drum breaks incorporated into the melody. Uh, Buster Williams has this huge fat tone on all of these recordings. It's like the this super bass sound. It's great with force. And uh, you're going to hear uh, on all these recordings and as well as on the next album, we're going to hear uh, Kenny Barron's class just comes right through. Uh, yeah. Harmonic sophistication, beautiful intensity, lots of class in his solos. And uh, they lock in uh, well here together with um, Kenny Barron's uh, rhythmic variations uh, with uh, the bass and drums like One Mind. Uh, Buster Williams has a great solo here too that he walks through. Uh, and he gets uh, some nice glisses to mix it up, uh, and Gibbs shows some tasty fills uh, in here. So it's a nice opening. Uh, the next tune, uh, Smoke Em Up. Uh, here, uh, we switch <laughs> some to... good titles. Yeah, it's a nice title. Uh, Patrice Ruchin on piano, Larry Golding's on organ. So uh, we're going to rely on the organ bass pedals for bass right. on the tunes that Golding's is on. And Ruchin... You know, in comparison to Kenny Barron and Chick Corea, has a kind of lighter touch, although right. later on he shows some more digging in. Um, but here we get a really nice funky groove uh, from Gibbs's drumming and then Golden's here. This is uh, straight up blues. Uh, listen for Golding's uh, really uh, bass pedal funk bass on this. You know, sometimes you hear organ players and they have kind of, uh, you know, you know, the bass pedals are playing uh, sort of an amorphous bass that's boom, boom, boom going on. This is really funky stuff here uh, yeah. that he's doing on the bass pedals. Uh, Russian gets some fluid bassy lines, or I'm sorry, bluesy lines here, and these funk chopped chords uh, along with his solo. Uh, and Golding's solo is really fluid here too. Uh, his organ style is a very straight tone he doesn't use like a lot of leslie uh tone uh to get you know things uh, mixed up a lot he, he generally keeps it uh really straight in his playing uh and that's just a feature of his style uh but this is a really uh good digging in blues and has a nice fun ending too uh next up is uh bobstacle course and <laughs> great title again <laughs> great title right yeah. um here we get Chick Corea and Ron Carter joining in with Gibbs. It's a happy swinging bop melody. Uh, and Chick plays it through really light and relaxed here. Uh, Carter gets some walking space with chords and accents uh, from Gibbs and Korea. And then uh, Gibbs has some really tight roll action in this tune, uh, showing off his drum technique. And I want to mention, too, that this is the first track we hear Ron Carter on. I was thinking, oh, Ron Carter has such presence. When he plays the bass, he'll be easy to identify. But actually, on this album, that's really not the case because uh, Buster Williams and Christian McBride are both like just monster yeah. players too, and they have this big, fat sound. So it was, it was, um, that's really that speaks well for them. And, you know, what considering I found that rock, 
Ron um, Carter's such a monster. Because what I assume is, you know, he's traveling around and recording these in uh, different locations and studios to meet with these people. There is mm-hmm. a there is a discrepancy in the recording quality of the different groups, and uh, I thought with this uh, Ron Carter's bass here is. It, it's a, not quite as uh, much presence in the recording as the ones with Buster oh, he Williams. the recording. Okay. Yeah, I mean, of course, individual, uh, you know, players' tones and things will play in. But uh, mm. I, I could tell an overall sort of quality difference in the mixing and mastering oh, okay. maybe of these different groups. If you listen to them, you, you might see what I'm talking about okay. uh, here. But uh, they obviously were recorded in different locations uh, to get all of this going on. Uh, now we're up to a tune, uh, Nutty Notes. Now here, we're going to get an amazing pianist, Jeffrey Kieser, yeah. uh, who has been nominated for uh, Grammy Awards. Yeah, I, and, and when he records something new, I definitely want to take a look and get it on the podcast. Uh, right. And he's, he's, a new, here, he's a new name for me, actually. I've, I haven't yeah, heard I, him before. I've known his name from the past, but I haven't heard anything from him recently, so it sort of, sort of slipped out of my... Uh, kind of focus, but you will take notice here, and we've got Christian McBride uh, in the trio here too. This is a blazing stop time minor melody riff tune, and uh, Kieser just rips through it, uh, and then yeah, he, he goes into he sounds a, classical really yeah. actually in this opening melody. Yeah, yeah he's, it's just like a classical pianist. You get a solo, uh, he's showing just amazing technique uh, with scales, uh, and he completely dismantles the riff and takes it apart and what he does with it. And he never runs out of ideas or fingers <laughs> to express yeah. them. Uh, uh, and yeah. then, uh, I mean, it's a, a, a blazing tempo. McBride gets some uh, walking space to show off here and he shows his usual uh, surgeon-like uh, precision uh, here. Right. But yeah, if you haven't heard uh, Jeffrey Kieser, uh, check out the technique on this tune. And, this uh, is amazing. Now, yeah. I think I even spotted some um, quotes from uh, Chopin's Fantasy yeah. Impromptu in C sharp minor. I, I think, think he so. directly quotes that piece yeah. in this. I, I believe he does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just amazing, uh, blazing keyboard technique. This guy's got chops to just uh, uh, burn with. Uh, right. The next tune, take it from me. Uh, we're going to go to Kenny Barron on piano here and back to Buster Williams. It's a mid tempo swing tune. And, uh, you know, Barron is one of these players like uh i guess like we've talked about in recent episodes george cables uh just classy touch and uh he's class yeah Kenny Barron, he really is i'll more say about him later <laughs> um uh one of uh things that made me i've i've known about him for you know a long time and listened to him but there's a a multi-disc maybe even seven disc playing it's one of uh, uh stan gets his last uh recordings called People Time and it's just piano and sax as Kenny Barron and, and Stan Getz and uh, so you really get on that recording to hear Kenny Barron as like the whole rhythm section taking over for everything and uh, he can do that really well and take on all those roles of uh, you know carrying the bass line counterpoint uh, chords and then a really wonderful sense of touch and dynamics uh, in his own solos and uh, he does that a lot on this album and uh, I particularly like this combination with uh, 
Buster Williams pudgy bass sound. So on this tune, yeah. um, he, yeah. he gets the fattest bass sound I think on this entire <laughs> album. Huge fat, yeah. Although the other to, ones are pretty fat too. Yeah, yeah, tightly here too with his brushes. Uh, you get some nice uh, spaces uh, that are left open by Baron Williams to kind of spackle those kind of you know brushwork. You can just <laughs> see those kind of images of getting painted on the walls. It's very. This is a very classic <laughs> playing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, the next one, Sweet Young Song of Love. And now we're back to uh, Chick Corea with Ron Carter again. It opens with this descending chord uh, kind of uh, pattern with a tight snare fills and bursts into a minor samba. Uh, Carter pumps out the pulse over Gibbs's real complex rhythms. And then the rhythm loosens up for uh, Korea's soul first part uh and then it gets re-sombified if that's a word uh as it goes on it is now yeah there's a huge break uh before a rather melodic uh ron carter solo and then there's another change up and uh kind of latin percussion intensity uh before a short uh drum solo break and then korea comes back with a synth solo on this one and they really uh keep it working uh right to the end on this one so uh, i was i was wondering about this because during the synth solo you hear the piano still playing so i guess he overdubbed it must be yeah yeah it must be okay so it's yeah. i was wondering about that yeah. Yeah, because i'm i'm pretty sure that uh, gibbs has overdubbed uh, a lot of the brazilian uh percussion i was wondering about that too yeah, yeah. So okay because so. it sounded like a bit much for one person to be yeah. doing Okay. Uh, next up, the fat man. Who's that? Can't be us because we're not fat men. Well, we're we're just my. Well, I am just mildly overweight. I have to just get oh. to the gym. I'll be cool. <laughs> not that fat. <laughs> anyway, no, no um, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't call myself fat. Really. No. Okay. We're back to uh, Jeffrey Keezer and Christian McBride. It's a grooving drum intro <laughs> and piano riff blues. Kieser is funky and very creative uh, harmonically. He's got some real uh, harmonic ideas and chops here, too. Uh, after a break with some solo piano chords, the beat changes to shuffle, which is kind of yeah. cool. Uh, and then McBride gets a bowed solo. Uh, yeah. Bowed bass, which is always cool. And Kieser is kind of tinkling the melody out up above uh, on that. So that's cool. Uh, there's a few solo breaks for Gibbs too. And then back to the funky beat of the melody. And then yeah. uh, there's also a nice final solo piano melody spot for Keezer. So it changes up on this fun tune. Yeah, he's more jazzy on this particular track because I was thinking he was cl more classically yeah. oriented on the first one. Um, this has like this Ramsey Lewis type rhythm to it. Right. I really like that. It really is. Whenever I hear this, I think of him. So that really says yeah. something to Ramsey Lewis. He like invented his own sort that of kind sound. Of groove. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. a groove oriented. The, the '60s groove, and then this one it gets that change up too, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, next, Lonely Days. Uh, switch here to. Uh, Patrice Russian again on piano and Larry Goldings on organ. This is a slow, even groove with huge, deep bass pedals and washes on the organ from Goldings. Uh, Russian lays the delicate piano melody on top and uh, gives really yeah. clicks on the groove here. Yeah, um, she gives a really nice uh, solo here, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tasty, restrained solos from uh, Russian and Goldings here. This one really makes you want to be like on a boat 
with any drink that contains rum. That's what I was thinking when I was listening yeah. to it. R- Russian gets this nice chimey sound on the piano yeah. too, and I'm just like enamored of just bell sounds in general. So I just really just yeah. sucked into that. It was really fantastic. Yeah. Just that n- enough hang on those notes yeah. in the style. That's uh, great. Um, now here we're gonna yeah. get. Um, uh, this is a variation. I forget the original title actually let me uh, he, they didn't say what it was i looked i tried to look for it but he renamed um, it yeah yeah it's the, renamed actually jerry gibson's father down. renamed it but um so this is a reworking of a original piece by uh terry gibbs and uh so this one they just is uh, retitled for uh hey chick uh yeah and so this is I really guess it cool. was Hey Somebody originally. Hey Somebody, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I forgot what it was. I have to go back to the original notes. But uh, so this is very cool what they've done here, what uh, Jerry Gibbs has done. I'm glad they, he only did this on one tune. Yeah. Uh, because it would be a gimmick otherwise. Yeah. But yeah. it's very cool. So he takes this tune and uh, he incorporates all of the trios into it as well as his father's original vibraphone solo from, I think, 1961 or something, uh, onto this uh, track. Uh, So the original solo is incorporated in here, and it starts out, and you've got uh, Goldings with an organ solo. Uh, It's really cool. The melody kind of hints at the chords to uh, Softly as a Morning Sunrise, so Goldings Uh. quotes, quotes that a bit. And then the piece transitions through... Uh, five additional solos of the various trios. So you've got Gibbs with uh, Goldings and Ron Carter, and then Kenny Barron and Buster Williams, and then Russian and Goldings, and then Kieser and McBride, and finally Ron Carter, <laughs> uh, and then uh, Buster William or uh, Christian McBride and Ron Carter, and then Buster Williams, Larry Goldings, and Christian McBride, respectively. So it goes through all the. <laughs> All of now, the trios. And now, I did guess, you figure... Yeah, they sound like they were spliced in. Yeah, they're all like, spliced. Yeah. So he obviously yeah. recorded those all with everyone, and then you know, he must have had them synced and so that they could yeah. all be spliced in. So it's very cool. It's seamless. But uh, how do you know who was playing when? Did you read this? Uh, it's on his original notes, uh, the order and how oh. he did it. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you, like, uh, can you figure out who the pianist is on each part? Because I was trying to figure that out. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I could tell Baron, and um, I could tell which uh, one was Baron. Well, it's I after thought he was or- last after the organ one. Oh, then, I got it then, wrong it, then it's um, with uh, so you got Larry Goldings first, and then you've got Kenny Baron yeah. and Buster Williams. Yeah, so oh, it's next I wouldn't have thought that. that. Yeah. I would have thought Baron was the last one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, you know, so it, it, it's really well done. You wouldn't know, but at the same time. Being able splicing that together, uh, you wouldn't want the whole album to be done like that, or it could be gimmicky. Right. So I'm glad that you know they just did it, it was, with that one tune, but it's kind of a cool effect uh, to get. It was everyone nice to together. hear, like on this one track, yeah, yeah just that one track, and uh, to hear his father's vibes laid over that too is really cool. Uh, then we move on to the rest of the uh, second CD. Then um, we've got a tune, Townhouse Three, and this is. Um, Gibbs with Russian again and Larry Goldings. This is a fast samba beat, and uh, Gibbs adds a lot of 
Brazilian percussion on this one. It's the uh, uh, monkey drum. Uh, yeah, what is that? that? Is that the thing that goes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, the, the monkey thing, drum. That's called the monkey drum. Uh, I was wondering. Uh, I was listening. I was wondering what that was. I thought quica, it might have been the organ. I believe they call it quicha. Uh, so oh. it's a drum that has a sort of wooden uh, dowel or post that goes through the head. It's in in through the skin. And uh -huh. what they do is they rub that uh, stick with like a cloth that creates uh -huh. friction. And then by placing fingers on the head of the drum, you change the pitch of that also. So you can That's change the intensity. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's played with friction rather than hitting uh, the instrument. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it always creates that, you know, surprising kind of voice like monkey quality right. so he yeah. he had to over he had to must be overdubbed yeah multi-track this okay right. uh and right. so on this one goldings keeps the pace going on the foot pedal uh bass uh Russian's more aggressive here with an exciting solo to match the mood and then you get a brazilian percussion breakdown with a transition to a fast swing uh, for Golding's organ solo that has some real blazing lines in it. Then it returns to the samba beat. So some nice rhythmic change-ups. Uh, really cool tune. Cool organ solo, too. Yeah. Yeah. Next, uh, T and S is the name of the tune. Uh, here, Gibbs is back with Kenny Barron and Buster Williams. It's a happy swing tune with a syncopated melody. There's a nice bass and drum feature inserted into the melody. It's a classy and inspired soloing from Barron. Uh, Gibbs gets some tasty drum work over spacey piano chords as well. Then it mm. changes up to a bluesy groove with Barron's left hand uh, setting it in uh, before Williams uh, kind of fades it out. Uh, the next tune is called 4AM. And here, uh, Kieser is back on piano with Christian McBride. This is kind of a boppy, snaking melody that's doubled uh, in the piano and bass. Uh, Gibbs mixes up the rhythms here, and Kieser and McBride are on fire and having fun. Uh, they mm. bring it down, outlining the chords uh, for Gibbs to have uh, a final run of fun on drums. And then uh, McBride walks along on this one. Uh, so a nice feature with more Kieser piano work. Uh, after that, Waltz for My Children. Uh, Chick Corea is back here with Ron Carter. Uh, starts out with cymbals and Korea's big chords, uh, setting the feel for a pretty swinging waltz. There's some nice cross rhythms between Carter and Korea uh, as uh, Chick finds lots of uh, pretty ideas to play over this. And uh, he ends this one up with nice impressionistic piano runs. Uh, I wrote, I invented the word Goraldi-esque to describe this because it reminded <laughs> me of like Goraldi tone skating uh, from the Charlie oh, Brown right, specials, right? right? Yeah, right. Yeah. That waltzy yeah, feel. That one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he he did a lot of waltzy feels Goraldi yeah. for the uh, Peanut specials. Nice, yeah. yeah. This this sort of recalls that in a way. After that, we get um, Hippie Twist. Uh, <laughs> nice <laughs> to, to number. So Russian on piano and Golding's on organ again. So really funky beat and uh, riff uh, for a shuffle feel on this bluesy minor tune. Uh, Golding starts out first with a bluesy solo and he hands it off to Russian. Uh, they both trade off with Golding's a bit more psychedelic in Golding's uh, uh, return when they start to trade off here. 
And then they go in uh, unison and have some fun with the ending, uh, kind of a hippie blues thing here. I wonder uh, what the impetus for this title was, you know, if there was something he yeah, saw. I don't know. Or Probably came out of the 60s, uh, yeah. looking at all the youngsters. Hmm. Ah, yes, the youngsters. The youngsters, <laughs> those young hippies. Uh, then we've got uh, Lonely Dreams. This is uh, back to Baron on piano, Buster Williams on bass, a slow ballad with a pretty melody cradled by Baron and brushed by Gibbs. Yeah. Can, I like the alliteration. Uh, Williams is fat and steady below. This is a huge bass sound. <laughs> this is, sounds so great. Yeah. Um, and Baron's solo has real extended lines and also attention to sensitive dynamics. Very classy. Yeah. Next is for keeps. Uh, Kieser's back on piano with Christian McBride on bass here. It's a syncopated swinging tune. It sounds like uh, some other tune that I've heard before. I can't quite put my finger on it. It's an original tune that sounds like a standard, right? Uh, right. Kieser plays a lot of accented big chords with... Uh, dynamic contrast it's got a real creative solo and then uh, mcbride solos going way up high and tight uh and then even more melodic uh bass ideas uh, the guy can just do anything on the bass uh, amazing stuff uh the next tune pretty blue eyes uh, back to russian on piano and goldings on organ uh it's a rubato piano opening uh from russian uh, it picks up into a medium fast waltz swing and Goldings adds some rhythmic kind of uh, accompaniment in addition to his bass pedals and takes the first solo. Uh, and Rushin has a nice solo here too. And uh, Gibbs accents it all with some tight brushwork. Yeah, Russian at the beginning of this piece has some uh, classical stylings yeah. too. I rather enjoyed that as well. So another somebody who's aware of like the, the classical style of playing. Yeah, nice. I mean... Over, compared to, the, you know, especially with, you know, Kieser's sort of playing and then with Chick Corea, you know, but uh, Russian has a nice sort of restrained style. Yeah. But I think a lot of ability. Uh, she's well, done, she's uh, more restrained than the other pianists on this yeah. album, but I think she can really cut yeah, loose. Yeah. We've heard a few times. The next yeah. tune, uh, I guess, would, num would be probably... <laughs> You would say it as gibberish, but I guess in this case it's gibberish for oh, Gibbs. Yeah, G-I-B-B, -B, the pun there. Very nice. Um, this one is uh, kind of a fun start and stop bop melody phrases that have alternating dynamics too. Uh, this is uh, Kieser and McBride again. Uh, McBride launches into a real speedy solo, uh, and Gibbs has some nice fine cymbal work under that. And then uh, Kieser plays another real energized solo, hitting some bluesy ideas between some rapid key pyrotechnics. Uh, Gibbs takes over for a solo uh, with a walking left-hand piano bass line before they return to the melody. Uh, next up is Tango for Terry. And this is uh, back to Chick Corea and Ron Carter. And this has uh, kind of a hypnotic riff intro into a samba tune. Uh, yeah, this, this incidentally is the only piece on the album that's a chicoria composition he right. actually wrote this for the project that's yeah. right so this one is uh, a non-gibbs composition and it also right. gets ron carter doing some bass bowing um, yeah here which is really cool uh korea carries the melody through its turns and gibbs has some really tight snare fills through it all uh, korea has a forceful solo and then carter gets deep with a solo and adds some intervals uh, while he's going through it 
Uh, they vamped for a while and then they let uh, Gibb release some dynamic drum work to return to the riff and some more bass bowing. Uh, the beat dissolves to just cymbals and then Korea takes it out in a lovely fashion with some kind of Spanish sounding chords to end it all yeah. up. This is an awesome album. It pays yes. tribute to his still living father, a giant of jazz that, you know, one of the last remaining uh, bebop era people and also, you know, someone who, you know, kept the vibraphone going and pushed it into modern jazz, uh, Terry Gibbs. Uh, it's got, you know, the best possible trios of uh, pianists and bassists you can imagine today. And I guess from his agent's uh, confirmation, Chick Corea's last recording. This is a must-hear album. Uh, Terry Gibbs. Yeah, even even is, if it wasn't Chick Corea's last recording, just yeah. the, the sheer musicianship on this album from everybody yeah, is just everybody. astonishing. It's so good. Yeah. You're going to get all these masterful pianists, all with different touches, but all, you know, uh, incredible first-rate players in their own right. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the, the bassists, uh, Christian McBride, uh, Buster Williams. Uh, and then when you don't have those, you have Garrett, Larry Goldings, who just uh, does some awesome organ work and bass pedals too. Uh, yeah, you, you've, you, this one is, and it's all really up, uplifting music that'll put you in a good mood. So definitely take a listen to this recording. Uh, and people often joke that like Box Brandenburg Concertos are the best job resume ever in the history of humanity. Uh, this album might be the the best uh, Father's Day gift ever given. I think so. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, um, it's it's so good. Uh, how could his father not be happy about this? He's, oh, he's, yeah. he's you know, fabulous. It's it's all his music. It's played yeah. as well as it can possibly be played. Um, yeah, it's not like I'm going to get the best. You know, trio to play your music so i'm going to get three of the best trios like <laughs> all of your your best students yeah yeah it's outrageous. absolutely fantastic this might be one of the jazz albums of the year actually it's just it should really be. great yeah. yeah uh and i i mean and i've talked about all the other players but i should say that terry gibbs drumming is just spot on um, he, he really is phenomenal yeah. i didn't really know much yeah. about him. jerry gibbs right his drumming uh, jerry gibbs, phenomenal. Yeah. yeah jerry uh, gibbs yeah technically amazing but with good feel and lots of variety too uh you can't go wrong uh, on any of those tracks with the drumming either so um yeah uh yeah just, just check it out it's it's a great uh double yeah, album. must hear i would say i'll yeah, push I on this so. one i'd say yeah. you, you have to hear this one now um on to um Another uh, one of the best uh, modern drummers today. Uh, certainly, we were told so by uh, Michael O'Donnell when we talked to him. Um, part of the Smoke Sessions crowd, uh, Joe Farnsworth mm. on Smoke Sessions Records with City of Sounds. And, and that city we is? Get Kenny Barron again on piano here. Yes, we do. And uh, Peter Washington on bass. And uh, these three have... Uh, played uh, together a lot and they're also uh, reunited from uh, Farnsworth's previous album Time to Swing which also included uh, Wynton Marsalis in the lineup and I heard that a couple years ago uh, and so uh, but here we're going to just stick to the uh, piano trio format no other horns or anything here and uh, 
Farnsworth has come up uh, through the ranks playing with uh, McCoy Tyner, Cedar Walton, Harold Mayburn, Hank Jones, uh, and uh, also uh, David Hazeltine, another uh, fine pianist. Uh, so here he is as the leader of his trio. And uh, yeah, <laughs> another album where uh, you're going to be amazed by the drumming and also the other musicians. And especially uh, the for me, the piano playing on yeah. this album. And I'll say why in a minute. Oh, okay. But first so of all, City of, City of Sounds, what's, what city might he be referring to here? New Yorkers. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be New York. It's, it's, be New it's York. given away in the in the title of the first That's track, right. really. Right, which yeah, is th this has a really New York vibe to it. This it, album, it does. Uh, yeah. And this is uh, Kenny Barron original, actually. Uh, New York uh, attitude. Are you talking to me? Yes, <laughs> 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 we are. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> New York attitude. There New York it is. attitude. What are you looking at? Uh, <laughs> we're off to a fast swing uh, with uh, Farnsworth's. He just uh, ride gave me flashbacks there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, like... yeah. on the subway. Uh, this melody uh, has like syncopated sections, and Farnsworth just locks in with Barron's accents instinctively. Uh, and there's um, uh, the Sonny Rollins tune, uh, Origin. Right. Uh, and that it sort of quotes that kind of uh, phrase inserted in there, uh, which is really cool. Uh, and there's a short section in there where the beat completely changes up uh, in the tune. It's very cool. And Farnsworth just, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it doesn't uh, slow him up or change anything. It's, it's just included in there, which is really cool. Um, and Baron gets a real driving solo. And Farnsworth fills in with like these tight snare hits. That's sort of his trademark. He can be doing all these other things and he just can hit that snare in some unexpected way uh, to fill in. Uh, and you wonder, how does he do that? Um, Washington gets a bass solo and uh, then Barron trades eights with Farnsworth uh, for a bit uh, before Farnsworth takes some more time uh, to show us his snare and tight tom work. Uh, so you better not cross him or else uh, you're going to get some New York attitude uh, back at you for sure. Uh, don't mess with his sticks. Uh, All right. <laughs> next to it is uh, I, I got Rogers. nothing to add to that. <laughs> I'll, I'll have something to say yeah, at the end. Let's just say about that. Me? Uh, yeah. Richard Rogers is uh, the story with a fringe on top. Uh, jazz standard. It's a classy yeah. ballad piano intro by Barron before it starts swinging medium fast uh, with Washington's bass pulse and Farnsworth's brushes. Uh, the interplay of Barron's hands in his solo is great. Uh, his lines really swing. Uh, and, you know, you got to listen to, you know, Farnsworth is the leader here. So, of course, the drums, everything can be heard really clearly. So this is a real yeah. study piece for drummers. Uh, he switches up from snare uh, brushing to sticks and cymbals uh, for a change of texture. And then uh, move to drive uh, as Baron goes uh, on and on in his solo. Then Baron and Farnsworth trade eights again uh, before returning to the melody and uh, Washington mixes up uh, what he's doing with one note beats intervals and walking and seamlessly matches whatever else is happening in the tune so you just got real mature uh, level of musicianship guys listening to each other and incredible technique and class and uh, taste this is jazz trio at its highest level
Yeah, and this is like a really traditional kind of cover. This comes from uh, the musical Oklahoma, mm-hmm. in fact. Yeah, yeah one of the greatest. Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. Yep. Yeah. Next, we've got a Farnsworth original. Uh, it's nice to have drummers writing original pieces, too. Ojos cariñosos, caring eyes. Yeah. Uh, it's a slow minor bossa with Washington uh, digging really low for bass tones mm. and uh, Barron playing pretty chiming notes. Farnsworth has tight hi-hat and rim hit patterns going here. Everything is crystal clear in the drums, uh, as you'd expect. You just can hear everything that... Uh, he's doing. Barron leaves uh, lots of space between his phrases here and Washington fills them kind of instinctively with these little bass nuggets of yeah. uh, fills that it's just perfect. Uh, and Farnsworth changes up again uh, to swirling cymbals and light hits uh, on hat, hi-hat sometimes. Uh, and so he's a master of textures of percussion as is Barron on the touch of the piano. So what what I mean is, you know, you're not going to get a drummer who just locks into a groove and has great timing. Uh, Farnsworth is also, you know, thinking about the textures of the drumming that he's doing. And mm-hmm. he's going to, he's not going to get into some kind of boring, repetitive thing. He will change up in any given piece and give you, you know, lots of different sounds on the kit, uh, even in the same style. Uh, so you can listen to his stylistic uh, variations. Uh, that are really interesting. Then uh, we go to another Baron original, Bud Like, uh, Bud hyphen like, uh, referring to probably Bud Powell here. I, I thought so too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we got an alternating interval riff in the bass and left hand of the piano that uh, Baron adds lines over before some chasing phrases that he plays over the chord changes. Uh, Farnsworth is ready to switch up from the even beat to driving swing sections. And I love how he drives the cymbal uh, while finding really cool things to do at the snare at the same time. Uh, Baron is all over with fresh melodic ideas on the chords. And then Farnsworth takes a solo featuring uh, Tom Work and tight hi-hat. It's super tight. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to this, yeah. Um, five, uh, Moonlight in Vermont. Uh, a jazz standard by Carl Swissedorf and John Blackburn. It's a hmm. beautiful barren piano intro uh, into a slow ballad tempo when Farnsworth and Washington join in. Uh, Washington gets a huge fat bass tone on some of the low tone. It's just like, you know, it swells out. It sounds great. Hmm. And Farnsworth uh, paints a picture with his brushes. He's got that real... You know, this brushing is just going to scratch your back while you're listening to this album. Uh, Baron shows off his touch. Uh, it's great articulation, lilting phrases. He's always leaving some space for you to kind of taste, you know. <laughs> you play something, you just be like, hmm, <laughs> before he goes I, on I to the next like thing. I wasn't like that, but <laughs> I did enjoy it a lot. Yeah, though. I like that one. <laughs> and uh, Washington has a solo here, too. And he surprisingly... Uh, plays really melodic uh, for a bass solo and he gets in some fast lines too uh, and then some pretty tinkles at the end from Baron. Then we've got the title track uh, Farnsworth's original City of Sounds. Uh, it's got a slow wa- swinging blues tune basically um, 
And then Baron just plays the blues on this really well. Uh, Farnsworth has fun adding press rolls, uh, rim hits, and other fills between uh, his time yeah. on the cymbal, uh, which he rides on for the most part. Washington is solo is really melodic again here. Uh, yeah, just a cool tune. This is the title track, in fact. Yeah. So I guess it's the one they had in mind when they yeah. Yeah. named the Cool album. New okay. York blues. Yeah, New uh, York. Tra- track seven uh, another Farnsworth original. I guess it's kind of funny for a drummer called No Fills. Uh, <laughs> maybe because it's so fast. It's a racing tempo tune. Uh, with uh, And now this is going to show you uh, Barron's versatility because he's really classy and nice touch on uh, jazz standards. But this is a more uh, modern uh, harmony type tune with some open interval chords. Uh, and he shows off his chops of modern harmony on this one. Uh, Farnsworth gets a lot of cymbal work here. Uh, Washington walks the fast tempos on the bass really tightly. And then uh, Farnsworth's going to mix up over his extended solo here all over the kit. Uh, He's got real impressive snare work, rhythm shifts, and you don't get bored in his drum solos like you might in some other drummers. Uh, He'll lull you into some uh, kind of a zombified beat thing. No, he's got Mm. too many... uh, tricks and skills uh, to keep things going on and interesting at the end rather than repeating the melody uh, they end it more quietly and minimized with uh, Washington kind of hypnotizing you with some awesome bass riffs as things go out Uh, so a nice classy approach here somebody hit me I've been hypnotized hypnotized (laughs) yeah hit me and uh, we end up with uh, well uh, something we heard hinted at by Goldings in the previous album, but uh, softly yeah. as in a morning sunrise, uh, Romberg and Hammerstein's uh, classic tune. This one gets off to a chugging medium swing here. Really tight brushwork from Farnsworth and kind of spring-loaded swinging from Baron. It's kind of that swinging bounce, you know, that only really masterful players can get in their touch. Uh, and Washington gives his own bass boost. Uh, Farnsworth switches up to ride cymbal as Baron solos, and uh, he's get, Baron gets a lot of time to pick apart and reassemble the harmony in this tune. Uh, he's got a real nice harmonic sense uh, in his soloing. Washington has a bass solo. It's got some, again, nice melodic ideas. And Farnsworth keeps it super tight in the background with the brushes. And then Baron and Farnsworth trade eights for a while. Uh, in uh, Farnsworth soloing the panned cymbals, uh, give a nice touch. Uh, you'll hear it in the left and the right in your speakers or headphones. And when they come back to the melody, uh, Baron has some fun with reharmonizing uh, the melody and then jamming out a bit over the tight hi-hat with some mambo hints as it fades huh. out. So I thought this this kind of before you sum up, I just want to say this yeah. kind of reminded me the sound the the sound the rhythm that they set at the beginning of this reminded me of uh, the uh, the tune Forty Second Street from that nineteen eighty musical by Harry Warren. I wrote down oh, okay. he had he had written a lot of like it it kind of sounded like something out of the nineteen forties, right? And it right, turned out right. that Harry Warren I did a little I didn't know much about him he. Uh, he did a lot of like film scores in the 30s and 40s, the Busby Berkeley okay. movies and stuff like that. It, it had that kind of vibe to it. And that really sucked me in. I was like, I'd never heard this tune, Softly as a Morning Sunrise. I heard it performed many ways, but not like this before. I thought it was kind mm. of appealing. Yeah. Yeah, really appealing. And so overall, I mean, 
I, I don't know what can say about the vibe of this is just classy. I mean, this is um, you know, just straight ahead modern jazz uh, done with complete class. One of the best uh, straight ahead drummers out there today. The program is good. It's a mix of originals, uh, a couple of standards, all done uh, creatively with uh, players who uh, are locked in together and having a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't get any better in, than this in jazz trio uh, format. Except it too. did in the Jerry Gibbs album, yeah. <laughs> but although this is, that, yeah. this is a different thing. Okay. It's a different thing, yeah. Um, it really is. And I think at this point, I want to mention that... Um, Having the drummer as a leader seems to really have a real effect on the pianist because the pianist isn't having to make all the decisions right. he would when he's the leader. And Baron, in this case, just sounds – he's very different here than he is on the Jerry Gibbs album. Mm -hmm. it, it's He's all New York class and glitter. And yeah. it's just fantastic. I just loved hearing this all the way through. I was like, oh, is this how he plays? It, it's one way he plays. Yeah. Um, I was really listening to him throughout being like – more enamored of the piano and bass my two instruments you know myself right. so um yeah i, I just uh this 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 album just sounds new york to me if you think of the opening of uh you know saturday night live all that like mm. high energy jazz electricity you, you get right. that a lot on this record except with no saxophones of course yeah i think you know baron has that like supreme touch and standard interpretation side of him but he also, I think he ha he is, you know, fully uh, comfortable also with a modern, you know, sort of uh, more open and adventurous harmonization, which we get a hint at of here too. Uh, and he can take the lead, as I said, listening to him with in that uh, Stan Getz uh, people's time recording where there's no other rhythm section, it's just him, uh, mm -hmm. or he can you know, sync to whatever drummer or rhythm section. I think he's a real complete player with a huge palette of capabilities, but uh, his yeah, he's uh, sense he's of He's a touch composer to, as well. He's got yeah, everything. Yeah, he writes good tunes too. But yeah. uh, the way his uh, sense of touch is too is uh, yeah, just wonderful. So, um, yeah, this is a great album. Uh, you're going to enjoy it. Uh, put you in a yeah. New York state of mind. And you right. say... Are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> Only you can hey, answer you, that. Yeah. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> another. I'm trying to think of more of those before we go on, yeah. but I can't. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of any more New Yorkisms. Yeah. It's been too long. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're going to. It's just as well, really. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> just as well. It's probably a good thing that we're forgetting. <laughs> Come to fisticuffs before the end of right. the podcast here. Yeah. Um, we end up with uh, the debut uh, leader recording of an up-and-coming drummer, uh, Jonathan Blake, on Blue Note with uh, a really cohesive uh, and effort yeah. for uh, a debut recording as a leader called Homeward Bound. Say, what a debut it is. Yeah. Homeward Bound, it's called. Yeah. yeah. And so we've got uh, drummer, composer, and band leader Jonathan Blake here. And uh, he's uh, up and coming in his career. Uh, his uh, quintet is called uh, Pentad, and it includes uh, Emmanuel Wilkins on uh, alto sax, who we heard back in episode 25 with Oren Evans, hmm. uh, vibraphonist, which I think sort of uh, 
gives that unique touch on this instrumentation here. Right. Uh, Joel Ross, uh, keyboardist uh, David Vareas, who we heard with uh, Andrew Cyril uh, just a few weeks ago, episode 30. And the bassist is uh, Desron Douglas. Uh, he's kind of a very modern uh, drum player uh, here. Uh, he's uh, collaborated with Farrell Sanders, Ravi Coltrane, Tom Harrell, uh, Avashikshai Cohen, uh, Donnie McClayson, uh, Jaleel Shaw, Chris Potter, Maria Schneider, Alex Sipiogen, and many, many others. Uh, and he can play in various contexts here. Uh, but on here, where he's the leader, he gets a really nice cohesive theme uh, on here. And what you notice, uh, he, in contrast to um, the two previous drummers, uh, uh, Gibbs and uh, Farnsworth, who are really tight, sort of uh, swinging precision masters, uh, I think... Uh, Blake's style is sort of a more loose kind of uh, uh, freeform style. Because he has not that he doesn't have a great, he has a great sense of rhythm that allows him to sort of uh, play around the beat more and let things happen uh, as he sort of drives from the angles uh, through things. So it's a different style of uh, modern drumming. Um, and so it creates a, uh, interesting kind of uh, thing going here. Uh, we also heard him, uh, I should mention, on uh, Lonnie Smith's Breathe, who, uh, you know, Lonnie Smith passed away, and we looked what's at his the, final the, album. Which one? The one with, uh, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Iggy Pop on it, that one? That album? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he okay. He was playing on that one, okay. yeah. Um, right. And he also played with Kenny Barron, uh, a few years ago, 2018, uh, uh, Concentric Circles. Uh, okay. And so, oh, okay. Uh, I remember that record. Yeah, and I guess he's uh, been playing with Kenny Barron for uh, more than a decade, uh, 10 or 15 years or so. So uh, he's been in you know, top jazz circles, and so here he is out on his own as a debut, as a leader, and it's a fine effort with... Uh, Nice overall kind of arc and uh, feeling to it. Uh, we're going to begin with one of his original compositions. In the beginning was the drum. Uh, it's just a short freeform intro uh, on drums, uh, mainly on toms and snare. Uh, it's very short, but it leads into the title track, Homeward Bound, parentheses for Anna Grace. Uh, this is uh, starting out with an almost ostinato bass line there's a little yeah. variation in it but it's pretty repetitive uh, but if you count it out you realize it's in 5-4 time huh. which makes it kind of interesting uh, the pianos and uh, piano and vibes create a dreamy chord mix and uh, Wilkins on sax floats a few long notes before the melody kicks in uh, it has some interesting weaves to the melody and harmonic choices uh, that the melody follows is uh, before you think it's too pretty, it'll change up a bit. Uh, Blake adds some real tasty fills here. And the vibes and sex, trade solo phrases. And then uh, Reyes has an undulating kind of piano solo. And uh, when we go through a little bit more, the piano and bass repeat a hypnotic riff uh, for Blake to solo over. Uh, so 
we're going home in that direction from the start. Track three, another Blake original, uh, Rivers and Parks. Uh, here, Royce uh, switches to a Rhodes piano, gives us another tone color in uh, the ensemble here. And uh, so the uh, Rhodes and then Vibes play the melody, which gets joined by the sax. Uh, Ross takes a nice Vibes solo, and then uh, Blake pushes the more free beat into a kind of driving swing with the cymbal. Uh, Wilkins solos next. He gets some interesting harmonic ideas, and then uh, Virilius takes a solo on the Rhodes piano, and then Douglas gets a bass solo as well on this tune. And Blake is always real busy uh, with lots of ideas backing the solo, but you get a sense of his loose style uh, here. He plays around the beat a lot uh, with lots of different uh, kinds of attacks. Uh, four is... Uh, original by the bassist Desron Douglas called Shaking the Biscuits. I wonder what that's referring to. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I like it when they shake the biscuits though. Uh, yeah. The sax and drums start kind of this track, right? free form hinting at bluesy thoughts uh, and there's some kind of panning, you know, phaser-like uh, Rhodes chords there. The bass joins with an ostinato line, and then the tune takes a funky, bluesy groove and shape. Uh, Ross comes in on vibes, and Virilius with some uh, synth lines here, too. Uh, and then Wilkins turns to squawks and honks in his solos, and uh, things spiral out a little bit uh, into <laughs> crazy land. But they finish up funky, uh, so all yeah. is good. Uh, then we have a rather sweet contrasting tune, uh, Abiyoyo, which is a South African traditional melody. Um, Blake introduces a slow drum beat with toms. Uh, Virius has the melody on piano, and uh, at the same time, the bass adds a little pulse to it. Uh, it sounds like uh, Ross hits some muted like xylophone tones in here, too. I, it doesn't sound like vibes. It could be if they're extremely muted or some other kind of pitched sharp glockenspiel or something. Uh, the sax joins in on the melody and then the vibes on some very sparse tones. Uh, he really holds back there. And then Blake taps out soft textures on the kit. This is a soft and rather lullaby-like tune. Uh, it's very pretty, but it fades out over repeated uh, piano and bass notes. Uh, so a little kind of... Uh, lullaby type thing in the middle uh, back to another Blake original next on the break where Blake introduces a real neat beat here a uh, cool hmm. bass drum kick uh, the piano and bass join in on this repeating riff you're just getting into it and it's gone <laughs> it's only like a little more than a minute uh, so it's probably just a groove or something they worked up and they thought well that sounds cool let's throw it in there uh, seven Triple L or LLL, another Blake, Blake original. I don't know what it refers to, but uh, here Blake mixes it up on the drum intro before the melody is introduced on both the sax and vibes, which is an appealing tonal combination. It's got a lot of rhythmic drive in the syncopated piano chords and the bass accompaniment, uh, along with Blake's cymbal work. Uh, Varelius is up for a solo first. He's got some free-falling lines here along with some hard-driving syncopated chords. And Ross really lets the mallets fly on his uh, 
vibes solo here too and then um, if you listen during the vibe solo the interaction between uh, Blake and Douglas uh, gets some like new kind of groove patterns happening under the solo uh, so there's sort of like a, you know while they're driving a solo they're having this new interaction under that so I thought the interplay on this tune is really cool and Oh, so we've got mostly uh, these original tunes with one uh, African traditional, and we come out with something unexpected, but any uh, one who grew up in the 80s will remember oh, Joe yeah. Jackson, and uh, got a really unique and cool interpretation of one of his best tunes, Stepping Out. Uh, so the tune starts out, you may, you wouldn't recognize it at all because it's a cool altered harmony uh piano intro here and then uh, it's kind of a rhythmic ostinato pattern uh, on the piano that's joined by the bass and then finally you'll hear that familiar melody uh, which is played pretty much straight up in the piano right hand uh, they repeat it again and then sax and uh, vibes uh, join in uh, and uh, we're stepping out and then you'll get yeah. it uh, on there and uh, so it's a nice build up uh, from obscure to the familiar uh wilkins takes the first solo and he really explores outside of the chords uh then various alters the harmonies uh and underneath all that blake keeps mixing up uh with an infectious driving beat uh, wilkins uh, hits on a riff in that and then he completely dismantles and explodes out of it <laughs> really like uh, rips these angsty notes uh until they suddenly subside back into a calmed melody restatement and that gets stuck into a riff uh without resolving uh that gives blake some time to show off some uh, impressive subdivided and really varied rhythmic ideas in his drum solo and then they finally resolve all that tension and go for one more round of the melody uh to fade it out so this album yeah it's a nice flow of tunes some interesting arrangements instrumentations i really thought that uh the uh addition of vibes uh to his group with ross's uh, mallet work uh just gives that extra space to the uh, atmosphere uh and in addition to that uh various adding the roads in there gives that spatial quality too so you've got this really nice kind of uh sound envelope uh for these tunes that wraps around you the tune section and the sequencing also take you on this journey home uh it's kind of nice uh so maybe it gives you this kind of homeward bound uh feeling after all uh, Blake's got a great sense of time, and that allows him to play loosely and around the beat uh, in a real modern style that's got a lot of creativity. But he still holds everything together, and he can, you know, switch to being really driving when it when he wants to. So that's a really satisfying listen uh, and a fine debut as a drum leader with a cool concept of sound. Uh, so another one definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. You had three great uh, jazz picks this week. I especially loved uh, that he included Stepping Out at the end. It's, it, I just yeah. love that tune. Yeah. And all those Joe Jackson tunes. He's actually, when I heard this tune, I actually looked him up. He's still recording and performing, but he, I don't know, you know, we're, I guess you could hear his music on uh, Deezer if we wanted to, yeah. his recent music, but uh, mm. I kind of lost track of him in the 90s. 
Um, I should really check out what he's been doing. Um, This album, another thing I want to say about this album is it has the vibes on it. And after we uh, were exposed to the the steroidal (laughs) ability of uh, Simone Mulia (laughs) a few weeks back, this was really just reassuring that, you know, it's, 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 it's vibe playing. It's more laid back. There's a lot of space yeah, on atmospheric, it. Atmospheric, yeah. It's atmospheric. I really enjoyed hearing him, and it's very present as well. It comes out of the speakers right. in this real with this real kind of glimmer to it. Yeah, I really enjoyed. It. I I don't want to put down Simo Mulias playing at all. I really enjoyed it, but I just thought it was like whoa, it was really tiring. I still listen to the album a lot though when I'm kind of you know. Well, it's nice around because um, yeah. I, you know, we all have really good concepts of the variety that you can you know, have individually like with trumpet or saxophone, but maybe we have a one kind of pattern image of the vibes, but, you know, we listen to more vibe players. We can, you know, see that, yeah, you can do a lot with that instrument as well. Uh, It's just, we don't hear it enough. Uh, But I do have another vibraphone recording on the, on the list. Cool. I can't wait. I really do like the vibes a lot. I know my dad liked the vibes a lot when he was younger. He used to listen to Lionel Hampton and Cal Jader a lot. Yeah. Cal Jader. Yeah, you like right. cool jazz. I think it might be time to break <laughs> I, out. I, the, I hope my dad listens to these records. I think you, you can get him back into jazz. I don't know. You know, the instruments not recorded often enough sort of combination. That might be that might be a good uh, thing to bring up, you know. Yeah. We get my, lots my, of sax and trumpet, but we don't get enough vibes and other instruments, so. Right, I want to hear more vibes. Anyway, my I looked at my I used to look through my dad's records. He had all these like cool jazz like records. He liked jazz a lot, but he never listened to jazz except for Frank Sinatra. Oh. When I was a kid, I right. think I think my mom changed him. I think he was much cooler before he got married. Oh no, <laughs> I hate when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> that was that that was warning number one for me. <laughs> oh, I I I myself never married so. There you go. There's still time. There's still time. There is, but uh, this record collection is staying. Let's let's just make sure we understand okay. that right away. I guess I lucked out on that because I right. guess I've been uh, I've been married for longer than I haven't. And yeah. uh, oh, good miss, for you. The missus, uh, she uh, puts up with my musical indulgences, and uh, yeah, she's very good. She's yeah. um, she's a good very, one. Yeah. yeah, I got lucky with that. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh, Gotta hey. have that. Gotta have gonna someone do? who loves music anyway. Yeah, otherwise, right. you know, if it's going to be... For know, us anyway. Yeah. I told her, you know, if it's going to be Luxman and Dolly or the wife, which one stays? Well, you know, I don't know. There's, uh, yeah. the, there's a few Dolly billion... Dolly would be the speakers, not the painter. This, this, this one yeah, the there's a few billion uh, wife possibilities out there, but there's not so many brands of amps and speakers. So, you know, what are you going to do? Are you yeah. looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> you look at me. I, I actually talked to this woman who um, was complaining that her husband bought a new stereo, and she came to me and thought I would be a good person to complain to Ooh, about how that. How wrong? How yeah. wrong of a? <laughs> I I had to restrain myself from defending her husband for buying the new stereo. Oh, wow! Because because it didn't fit in with the living room or something. I don't know. Uh, I guess they just needed a new house. <laughs> <laughs> just need wow. a new house that's all I don't know yeah, I mean but she she was really mad about that I was like oh well, I think I made the right decision staying in, single uh, 
in yeah. detail in the it, future. It, there's not much detail to it, really. Uh-huh. So she just kind of decided I was going to be her her earpiece, uh-huh. and I just are they still married? I, I was. Let's just say I was not sympathetic <laughs> to her <Right>. suffering. <laughs> I'm trying to think All if right. I've talked to any guy who got a who told me that he got a new wife because she didn't agree with this. Terrace. I don't know. Maybe not. But, but you know, there's a the comedian. There's a comedian, um, Bridget Phetasy, and I sometimes watch her show on um, YouTube. And she's been recently married, and she's recently married, and she was talking about her husband who had. I don't know if he bought a stereo or something, but she she was saying to her other female kind of like co-conspirators, mm. um, they they love wires. <laughs> Something about guys. It's not the wires we love. We love the high fidelity. I don't know yeah. if it was wireless, it'd be even better. I don't know, but she. It, it's really funny wow. to me that she was kind of fascinated by that. We really are different men and women, aren't we? I don't know. As far as stereo equipment goes, maybe not music, but uh, stereo equipment definitely. Yeah, I guess there's all different focuses uh, and interpretation. Mm. You know what? But in all that, what matters is the music. Right. And what we want to feature, whether you listen hi-fi, lo-fi, no-fi, or however you listen to, uh, we want the music to be mature and to matter. And uh, I think this week it really did uh, with some real variety. And And some great... uh, Music, some great recordings too. All great of it was really good. A variety of classical music from the old to the ultra modern, yeah. and uh, some of the uh, best drummers out there today in traditional uh, swing driving uh, music, right up to kind of loose and modern interpretations. And uh, yeah, that's what we're all here for music for the mature mind on adult music. Uh, we scour the best new releases and uh, listen to them as much as possible to describe them in detail uh, to save you time with picking great new things to listen to every week. And uh, so do check out all of the links to the recordings or hit up the playlist on Deezer. This one's been episode 37 of Adult Music. We'll be back next week with episode 38. Uh, Again, please do like and subscribe uh, on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, if you want to contact us, the uh, email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And uh, what do you think, Mike? Any hints for next week? Well, yes, as far as classical goes? Yeah. I, I think I'm going to stick to my pattern of Baroque, something in the middle, and then a contemporary composer. Okay. I'll give you that. I don't know. I have... Uh, I have a bunch of trombone recordings, but I don't know if they're all interesting enough. Uh, so I, what I might do is make it those sort of uh, instruments that we don't hear enough of, including no. vibes, trombone, and maybe something else. That uh, could be cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, because you can play jazz on all kinds of instruments. Uh, it doesn't have I, to I be think I've got composer, I think I've got composers we don't hear enough of, so maybe we can have yeah. a theme there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... This has been a dive into the unknown, and now it's known on episode 37. You've known I guess the that's unknown. our title, huh? We I guess that'll be it. Yeah. We'll see right. what people think of that. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week again with episode 38 with some classical and jazz releases. And so have a good week of listening. Check out the playlists, and we'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.